You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 585. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 13th of September, 2023. Two airliners almost collide over Phoenix. There may have been a hidden camera in an American Airlines plane lavatory. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, Rocket Man. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 585 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 1010 wins on 92.3 FM in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia. And joining us from across the pond from his studio... In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. Professional photographer, former RAF RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways. It's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. Uh, Lovely to see you again. Looking forward to a great show, Uh, especially now that I'm a whole year older. Oh, that's right. Happy belated birthday. And also joining us from his home studio in the air capital, low-end, slow-pilot, AMP mechanic, old airplane enthusiast, and engineer in the aerospace and defense industry, it's Nick Camacho. Hey, Captain Jeff and crew. I'm just uh, just getting over a little bit of a cold, so I sound a bit froggy, but uh, excited to be here. All right, great to have you with us again, and also joining us. From her studio in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, where it's a place to grow and a place to stand and a lot more. Aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer, it's Liz Piper. Good day, everyone. Let's go ahead and move on to some aviation news. What do you think? Absolutely excellent. Stand by for news. All right, let's start off with this first item in our news notebook. Uh, This is from theaviationherald.com. An American Airlines Boeing 737-800 registration November 305, November X-ray performing flight 1388 from Phoenix, Arizona to New York, John F. Kennedy, New York. It's clear for takeoff from Phoenix's runway 26. At almost the same time, Within seconds, a Southwest Airlines Boeing 737-700 registration November 406 
Whiskey November, performing flight 2286 from Phoenix to Austin, Texas. It was cleared for takeoff from uh, Phoenix's runway 25 right, which is south of runway 26 on the, in the yeah. south complex on a different tower frequency. Uh, so there, so the, the, um, Southwest flights on the, um, on the left parallel runway and the, uh, uh, Americans on the right. And then they're separated by the terminal complex, I believe. Isn't that correct, Rick? Yeah, that's correct. Yes. Okay. The uh, both. Yeah. Both aircraft were climbing out in parallel the aircraft were being handed off to departure and were temporarily out of radio contact when the Air, American Airlines aircraft began to turn left into the flight path of uh, the Southwest flight. Both tower controllers, as well as the, as the departure controller, instructed American to turn right and Southwest to climb. Uh, they, they both had raised voices. When American finally established radio contact with the departure control, uh, the departure control instructed the crew to immediately turn right and query the crew whether they had visual contact with the other Boeing. And then they instructed the American to maintain visual separation. And then after uh, the Southwest flight reported on the frequency, uh, they told him to climb. After the flight trajectory trajectories began to diverge and the voices calmed down, the crew of American 1388 tried to explain that they were given the broke one, B-R-O-A-K-1, standard departure procedure, requiring a left turn after becoming airborne, and were following that procedure. The controller stated that they had been given the FORP-1, or I'm not sure if that's pronounced right or not, FORPE, F-O-R-P-E-1 departure, and uh, he was done with this. <laughs> okay. So, we, have, so we, we do have a video with the live ATC audio, and I have not yet listened to this, so this, this should be uh, fun. Okay, yeah, so like this it. is okay. This is from um, you can see ATC uh, reconstruction of flights, a YouTube channel. Uh, let's see, this happened on the seventh of August in Phoenix. Okay, so we just talked. We kind of just read uh, basically the setup, and so we're going to go ahead and hit play and continue with uh, some of the live ATC audio. Hopefully, I think it's playing. And I haven't heard American anything 2286 yet. Here we go. Tower, or correction, Southwest 2286, Phoenix Tower, runway 25 right, Southwest 2286. American 1388, Okay, on the South Com Complex. They're both rolling on this simulated uh, video depiction. Almost parallel, actually. Mm -hmm. South 2286, your southbound turn, contact departure. Departure, good day. Sorry, 1388, contact departure, good day. Parts American 1388. 1388, you're uh, you're out, you're still straight out, correct? On the Forpy. No departure American 1388, 2000, Clando broke one. American 1388, Phoenix departure, verify 4P1 departure. 4P1 departure American uh, 13. We did the broke one American 1388. Clock less than a mile, same direction, Boeing 737, 3000. Do you have a traffic in sight? 86 says American in sight. 2286. Okay, if you need to turn left, immediately do so. Okay, 1388, Phoenix there. Okay, 1388, Phoenix. 
Go ahead. Third standing, a traffic alert, 9 o'clock, less than a mile, Boeing 737, 3000. Do you have the traffic in sight? Yeah, they we have it. I'm sitting right there. Do you see the traffic? They firm, market 1388. Roger. 2026, traffic has in sight. Copy that. Uh, can we get a heading now for 2286? 2286. Okay, did you make the turn? We, uh... Checked about 30 to the left. And we're south 2026. All righty. Uh, let's turn. I'll make sure American turns out of your way here. South 2026, turn 15 degrees right. 15 right, south 2386. Okay, 1388, I dent. Interesting. Radar contact, six miles west of Phoenix. Phoenix, L10, Fly present heading, climb and maintain 8,000. All right, present heading, climb and maintain 8,000, American, uh, 1388. Uh oh. I think we That's messed up. Unhappy. What's 2286? Turn left heading 180. 180, South 2286. American 1388, turn left heading 180. Left turn to 180, American 1388. Since that's what he Continue to their destinations. Uh, okay, so that's it. So um, interesting. Um, so I did uh, pull up the uh, FlightAware data, uh, and uh, this now I have to say this is what is included in the details of the American Airlines flight. Now, whether or not this is the actual clearance that they received from. Uh, most likely, what, PDC, um, um, the uh, ACARS and PDC system, or maybe CPDLC. I'm not sure if Americans using that system or not. Uh, but what, in general, the information that we see on this FlightAware page of, of the flight uh, under the, uh, the route is uh, usually what the, the company has filed and uh, is what we have received in our pre-departure clearance or CPDLC or whatever. Um, so it sounds to me like maybe there was some kind of miscommunication, uh, like mis-digital communication. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know. Or maybe uh, they just, they're so used to doing the broke one departure that, I don't know, I I can't see that happening. Like just programming something without actually referring to what you're cleared and going through all the, all the procedures that we go through when we get a clearance um, before we even start our, our, um, our pre-flight checklist. We verify the route that we've received, that it matches with the flight plan. I mean, you talked about this um, on the last show, Rick, uh, about right. you know verifying all these things. So what what happened? And, and not only not only do you don't not only do you verify, but you have to brief it. I mean, whoever's whoever's uh, uh, whoever's pilot flying does include the departure procedure as part of the briefing. Um, yeah. Uh, the the pilot, depending on the on the um, 
on the um, the operating procedures of, of each airline, but uh, at my airline, whoever's the pilot flying will read off the box, and by the box, I mean the, the, the control display unit of the flight management computer, mm-hmm. point by point, and the pilot monitoring um, will double-check that with the actual chart um, in hand to make right. sure that the uh, <laughs> what's being briefed in the box is actually what's being briefed in, in the chart as well. Not only that, but on just about every airplane nowadays uh it's equipped with gps and a lot of these departure procedures um out of parallel runways the margin of error is so slim that you need to track these departure procedures very very accurately and so um, on boeing aircraft at least in order to fly these procedures you need to arm a lateral navigation mode on the ground and then the automatic flight director system will capture your lateral mode at 50 feet above ground level and give you steering commands to keep you on that lateral track. Um, it used to be that RNF-1 departures, and by RNF-1, basically what that means is that um, you need to be inside of, so that, um, how, how would you how would you categorize RNF-1? It's, it's a... Um, well, within within a mile, accuracy, I guess. Within, exactly, or accuracy within a mile. mile, right? So, exactly right. Yeah. So, so these RNF one departures. It used to be that you had to fly them on autopilot. I think now, and it, it varies from airline to airline. I think I think now you can fly, you can hand fly them as long as you have valid flight director yeah. um, display on your primary flight display. Uh, but I personally, yeah. when it's an R, when, yeah, when it's an RNF one. I just let George do it, you know, get to 250 feet, put the autopilot on and just take a couple steps back because there's a time and a place for hand flying and flying formation with another airplane off of, uh, you know, a, a parallel complex. It's not the time to do it in my personal opinion. So I do it all uh, the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Inverted. <laughs> we, we, and uh, out of Atlanta, we get these things, and we're uh, sometimes we're using three runways for uh, departures, usually just two. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, just uh, I um, normally uh, in the jet that I fly, we hand fly until we get up to, I don't know, usually at you know a minimum of five to ten thousand feet. Some fly mm-hmm. even longer, uh, but you know that's you know not it's not a requirement to. Uh, use the automation for this, but we do have flight directors and we have all the displays and everything else. So, I mean, we're watching, in fact, the tower controller in Atlanta uh, will not let you go to departure uh, until they can see that you're actually tracking the, uh, the, the departure track that they're expecting you to track. Like in this instance, in Phoenix. Yeah. But remember how I remember flying out of Atlanta and many other airports in the States where as part of your takeoff clearance, the name of the departure procedure, if it's an RNAV procedure, it'll tell you, uh, I don't know, ACME 1, 2, 3, RNAV 2, X. Yeah, that first RNAV fix. And that RNAV fix is associated with the departure procedure that you're cleared for. Right, and so that's one last, one more um, uh, verification step that, uh, that that you have there. But yeah, clearly something, mm-hmm. someone, the ball was dropped here, and uh, um, good on the controller for catching it quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember reading somewhere that the I think they were within three hundred feet and point three miles, something like that. As yes, far as, uh, 
as far as the closest uh, point of uh, convergence there before Southwest started making that turn and then American uh, uh, steered away. That's that close. Is really, really close. That's really close. Yeah. Very. That, yeah, that, that's one that gets Rick and my attention. <laughs> it's like, okay, sometimes it's like within a mile and 500 feet or something like that. I'm going, you know, that's, that's getting uncomfortable, but 300 feet and 0.3, I mean, so it's like, that's only a couple thousand feet um, um, horizontal spacing and 300 feet yes. vertical. That's, yeah, you would, uh, that American pilot, well, both of them looking at each other in the airplanes would say, Wow, that's a really big airplane right there. <laughs> Why is that right there? Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking when when the uh, the North Tower asked him, "Do you see Southwest?" and there was like a big pause, and I'm thinking, "How can you not see it?" <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, that should be so obvious. Yeah, those bright orange and yellows and everything else on that Southwest flight. Uh, yeah. Wow. So yeah, again, looking at this flight aware, um, uh, the filed flight plan it says the the four pay one maxo kilo alpha 33 whiskey and then a bunch of fixes um mm. so it, as i said at least it says clearly here now whether that was what they actually got um on their on their flight deck and in their a car or however their system works uh, I would imagine it's probably what you were describing the other day, Rick, where uh, it, it comes in and then probably just automatically gets entered into the uh, flight management computer. And then you just, but you still have to always go in there and verify. But, but if, you know, to give the American guys a break here, if mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that what he was actually, what, what they were actually cleared, uh, you know, matched their flight plan and everything matched, 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 um, I, you know, I don't blame them for doing what they thought they were supposed to be flying. And as you said, uh, the reason why this wasn't a major aircraft accident was that uh, the, the the tower controllers, um, mainly the North Tower controller, because, you know, he was looking out the window about to send him to departure controlling. What was he doing? Why is he turning left? You know, and then it kind of resolved the situation. Uh, and uh, thank goodness for for that, you know. You know what I found interesting is that uh, clearly the, the airplanes, as, as we talked about, they were so close. Um, where was where was TCAS in all this? Well, that is an interesting thing as well. I'm wondering if I don't recall the exact parameters for when it's um, inhibited and when it's active. But it's, I would think in that uh, phase that should have been active. No, it's yeah, it's definitely it, it's it's. Uh, off the top of my head, and don't quote me on this, I've been up for a long time. Uh -huh. uh, south of a thousand feet AGL, it'll go from TARA to TA only, and that's on the way down. These guys are on the climb out. Um, they got at their closest point, they were clearly above a thousand feet, and there was never resolution mm -hmm. advisory. So that's something I was thinking about. I wonder what happened there. Yeah, it seems like in both airplanes, I think that that thing would have been screaming at them, at least traffic, mm -hmm. traffic, uh, if not, you know, the uh, resolution advisory instructions. I don't know. Yeah. Good point. I didn't even think about that. And uh, mm -hmm. in, in these recordings, when we were listening to the to the pilots uh, communicating with the tower, usually when there's a TCAS alert, you'll hear it in the background when they're making their transmissions. I didn't hear a thing. 
quiet. Yeah, I didn't either. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a really good question, Rick. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. maybe somebody with some inside knowledge will be able to, uh, you know, let us know something. I did look in the Aviation Herald to see. Well, no, it was in the Aviation Herald. Maybe they'll have some because um, that's the article I was reading from which I was reading there at the beginning. Um, I'm wondering if at some point they'll have some kind of a follow-up. I don't, I don't recall them saying anything about it being investigated by anyone, at least not yet, not in this initial um, uh, thing on uh, Aviation Herald. Uh, but if, if they do investigate it and uh, they end up having an update on the Aviation Herald, we'll certainly cover it and maybe we can figure out what happened there. But... Uh, yeah, that was a close one, and uh, thank goodness for the uh, for the controllers being on the ball there and preventing a, a major a major mid air collision. Absolutely. All right. All right. Good. Um, let's uh, let's move on to the next item in our news. But before we do, let's see if there's <laughs> anything else for the other hosts to to add. I can't remember the height TCAS uh, stops operating uh i know it's disabled uh uh when you're on the ground um but at some point it's going to become active but i can't remember exactly when that transition is um the the important point for me uh is you know you've you've covered these so i'm just going to reiterate is to ensure you've got the right uh, departure in and these guys obviously didn't whether that was an air traffic clearance problem or their expectation problem once you've both decided that you've got the right clearance in all the cross checks of your paper departure chart and your electronic uh, flight plan are going to be useless because you both reading the clearance you've got checking it against the the uh, paper chart but you've both you both look at the wrong departure because that's what you've entered into the box um so yeah, the, the the important check to make is that the clearance you've been given from air traffic is the one you've got in the box, as well as all the other checks. Um, the one uh, point that Rick made about Atlanta, I it was the only airport in America I ever went to where you were required to give the first RNAV point on your departure as part of your takeoff clearance. And I thought that always was a very clever way to be absolutely certain that because there are all these aircraft taking off from parallel runways uh, and close runways, um, that you're all going to start heading in the right direction. And I'm pretty certain one sticks in my mind football. Would that have been one of the departure waypoints? Anyway, it rings a bell. Yep, on uh, on 27 right, I think. Absolutely. And it used to be sort of one of the, because it was the only airport we ever do did this, it was always a, a, a point of pride to make sure that we both realized that that was a requirement and get that call right because we never did it anywhere else. And the question I would like to ask is why not? Because it seems to be an extremely sensible double check for air traffic that the airplanes getting airborne off close parallel runways are all going to go to the right spot. And why doesn't every airport do it, including um, this fine Phoenix? So it would have saved all this problem because the guy would have said, um, Cliff, take off Jutac. Uh, and the bloke would have gone, no, <laughs> you're supposed to be going to Hervu or, uh, you know, 
Yoku or whatever the or uh, their clear their their waypoint was. Anyway, that would have saved a lot of hassle, a lot of heartache. So I, I'm just a bit surprised that that when you got one airport's got a good idea, what what is it that stops everyone else from adopting that procedure? Yeah, ben in our live audience says LAX does that now with the uh, takeoff clearance. I think oh, it's, a, it's a great idea. Yep. Yeah, I, and you know, before they started doing that, they uh, required that uh, we, uh, as we were taxiing out, we we had to verify our first fix before we even got cleared onto the runway, uh, and that was because the you know when the procedures were just being implemented, they wanted to make sure everybody was on the same page. But I do like the fact that they say RNAV to MPAS or RNAV to football, you know first fix. And that's a great cross check for us because we look in, uh, at our map display and we see that fix. And we look at our EFB and make sure that the, you know, that's the first fix. So we a lot of cross checking going on there. And that would have definitely saved the problem here. Because if indeed they thought that they were really clear for that broke, broke one or 4P one, whatever, uh, it, by naming a different first fix, that may have gotten their attention. Oh, certainly. I think it uh, certainly would have done. Yeah. Other than that, uh, I think it was a very good analysis. Well done, guys. Yeah. yeah. The only uh, point I was going to bring up that you brought up, Captain Jeff, is w what a 737 looks like uh, 0.3 miles away from you when you're <laughs> at three or 4,000 yeah. feet. I was going to say, did you notice it was like a little bit of a lag from, hey, do you see the traffic in sight? And it's like, well, come on. I mean, they're like, <laughs> Yeah. Be very, very large in your windscreen right now. I mean, that's a big, bright, yellow, orange paint job. Yeah. Anyway, um, so fortunately, you know, the controllers were on the ball and they uh, saved a, a collision, I, I'd say. Yeah. All right. Um, I think we can move on now to our next item, which is from the Aviation Herald as well. Um, okay, this is something we covered back in shortly after it happened in 2021, February 20th, 2021. Uh, a United Boeing 777-200 registration 772 United Airlines or uh, Uniform Alpha performing flight 328 from Denver to Honolulu with 229 passengers and 10 crew was in the initial climb out of Denver's runway 25 when the right-hand engines uh, inlet separated associated with the failure of the engine. The crew declared Mayday reporting an engine failure. And uh, they they stopped at 13,000 feet, returned back over to Denver, and then they landed safely on runway 26 about 23 minutes after departure. Um, let's see. I think we have a final. Is this the final report, Liz? It is final. Yeah, okay, keep going on down, September I 8th. I see it. Thanks. On September 8, 2023, the NTSB released their final report and investigation docket, uh, concluding the probable cause of the incident was the failure, uh, the fatigue failure of the right engine blade, of the right engine blade, they only have one, uh, contributing to the fan blade failure was the inadequate inspection of the blades, which failed to identify low-level indications of cracking, and the insufficient frequency of the manufacturer's inspection intervals, which permitted the low-level crack indications to propagate undetected and ultimately resulted in the fatigue failure. Contributing to the severity of the engine damage following the fan blade failure was the, the design and testing of the engine inlet, which failed to ensure that the inlet could adequately dissipate the energy of and therefore li limit further damage from 
an in-flight fan blade out event. And also contributing to the severity of the engine fire was the failure of the K-flange following the fan blade out, which allowed hot ignition gases to enter the nacelle and imparted damage to several components that led flammable fluids to the nacelle, or that fed flammable fluids to the nacelle. Wow, a lot of... uh, a lot of Fs there, um, which allowed the fire to propagate past the undercal area and thrust and into the thrust reversers, where it could not be extinguished. All right, so um, yeah, what do you guys think? There's some more stuff here that's uh, highlighted in uh, a very pretty green color. Oh, I I just had some thoughts there, Jeff. I, I mean, um, first of all. Uh, <laughs> The engine is uh, actually designed to contain a lot of fire. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I, let's not get too uh, wound up about seeing a fire inside an engine. Uh, that's that's my first point. But, uh, yeah, um, it's when it escapes outside the engine you you start to get worried. But even then, it's uh, usually pretty safe. Um, there was an interesting one that the cockpit fire warning light extinguished shortly before landing, uh, and this was likely the result of thermal damage to the engine fire detection system. It's interesting, isn't it, that often in the simulator, we get an an indication of an engine fire, we do the drills, we fire the bottles, and then we look to wait to see if the firelight goes out. And so often, we almost get drilled into, ah, the firelight has gone out, the fire's been extinguished, all right, let's calm down a bit now let's perhaps go into a hold and think about what are we going to do with our next actions we're going to land back or are we going to jettison or whatever um but this is just a reminder that if the fire's been intense there's a good chance that the actual fire detection system itself will have been uh burnt out uh so and it can remain on so uh you know or it can go off uh, unexpectedly or, or when the fire isn't extinguished um so there are two uh, possibilities there so the the answer is always treat the fire um as as if it's still going i think uh, is a good idea uh the failure of uh the flange um that allowed the uh, main gearbox to rotate and the main gearbox mounted fuel servo heater that was contained a lot of fuel under high pressure and that was punctured and that released high pressure fuel into the nacelle so even though the fuel um, valve uh, in i guess it's the pylon had correctly turned when they pulled the fire handle uh to shut off fuel there obviously was fuel still contained in the area of the engine and that fed the fire in addition the hydraulic pump uh, supply shut off valve failed to close when they pulled the fire handle so one uh, you know a few of those valves worked but one didn't and of course hydraulic f- fuel uh, hydraulic oil is flammable high quite highly flammable um, so that was an interesting thing. So it's just another, uh, you know, caution. When you pull the handle, it's quite likely that those valves that are supposed to activate and isolate the engine, um, you know, there's no guarantee they're going to work. It's not like you use them every flight and they get serviced when they get serviced. And um, they said uh, they this handle, the, this valve failed to close because of silicon 
lubricant that had got in there and uh, contaminated the electrical contact components of the valve's uh, electrical motor. So, you know, things can happen and things may not always work. So that, I think, is another uh, lesson to uh, take away, the fact that, you know, sometimes you try and isolate an engine, it's not always going to isolate. So uh, always treat these emergencies. I, I never used to like the idea, personally, of uh, saying, okay, we're nice and safe now. We put the fire out. Let's go into the hold and get all the drills done. <laughs> because I, I don't know. It was just in my nature to be suspicious of the fact that the fire appears to be contained. I don't know. I think it was uh, always a big relief when it did go out, and I'm not going to question it in the simulator, <laughs> no, it, at least. In the simulator, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, in the real world, I, th I, I think agree. you're right. I think it's you shouldn't assume that it's it's definitely out, right? Yeah, yeah. That's good. Good point. And silicone uh, lubricant, um, uh, Camacho. Um, you're a mechanic, um, AMP. I know you don't deal a lot with jets and stuff like that, but. Uh, is that something that's uh, typically used a lot in the engine area and around electrical contact components? Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure on jet engines. I don't know. I, I know we use it a lot in uh, avionics, you know, cabin avionics, um, but I'm not sure about jet engines. Brad, the Sultan of Wings okay. has a comment oh. for Nick there. Uh, Brad, the Sultan of Wings, uh, Nickets. No, this was an example. <laughs> excellent, well thought out assessment. Well done, Captain Nick. Okay, so we didn't. Oh, wow. We Thank reserved you. the nickets. Actually, it was uh, frog sounds. I think that we used to use <laughs> yeah. for uh, for Captain yeah, Nick. It's been a sure long time since frogs. we've done that. I don't either, um, because you're not French. Um, no, no, no. I don't know. I don't know how we came. Like, up I can't with remember frogs. the last time I ate frog legs. But he did speak French on the last show. Oh yeah, Swasonuf. Very true. Mm -hmm. Um, we like it. Yeah, but now I understand what that means. I didn't when you yeah, said exactly. it on the last show <laughs> intro, but now I know. Thanks to uh, Liz. Um, yeah, oh, no, Liz I was trying to find the, about uh, that, the frog's sure. uh, sound effect. Yeah. But I Maybe. can't find it. Anyway, all right. I think that uh, we beat that horse with a dead, a dead horse with a stick uh, enough. Let's go ahead and head to uh, this next item out of the uh, Aviation Herald again. Uh, it is an Air China Airbus A320 200 November registration uh, Bravo 305 Juliet performing flight uh, 403 from Chengdu. Chengdu? How do you say that? I always say that wrong. Chengdu. Chengdu to uh, Singapore with 146 pet. By the way, uh, the next Formula One race uh, this weekend is going to be from Singapore. Uh, with 146 passengers and nine crew, was descending towards Singapore when the crew declared emergency, reporting that they had received a forward cargo hold as well as lavatory smoke indication. Smoke developed in the cabin. The aircraft landed on Singapore's runway 20 left and stopped on the runway. The aircraft was evacuated via all slides, including the left-hand over-wing slides. Nine people received minor injuries. Emergency services extinguished the left-hand engine, a Pratt & Whitney 1127 Golf. Uh, the emergency services extinguished the fire. The runway was closed for about three hours as a result of the occurrence. Uh, Singapore Civil Aviation Authority reported that uh, there were nine minor injuries due to smoke inhalation and abrasions during the evacuation. 
And uh, so let me uh, go ahead and play this uh, video and you'll see what how smoky it got inside that jet. Uh, wonderful music here. Engine failure shows the um, slides and the emergency evacuation happening. And there was quite a bit of luggage taken off that plane. Was there a lot of luggage uh, while they were evacuating? Oh, that's that's no good. Okay, this is basically talking about the flight path. Smoke appeared in the cabin of the A320neo before landing. Smoky. Very smoky. Air China says the nine crew members on board handled the incident properly. And according to procedure, you can see the uh, engine there <laughs> still pretty hot. 146 passengers were successfully evacuated. And as we said before, nine sustained minor injuries related to smoke inhalation yeah. and abrasions. Stop there, that the guy coming down line. right behind that guy. Ah, okay. Well, let's see if we see any more. Um, here, I'll back it up. I, I just love that music, and I'm being sarcastic when I say that. Here we go. There's a just back up a little guy, bit. a little bit more. I thought I saw it. I know. Uh, sorry, I guess I Maybe not. It. I definitely saw quite a bit of luggage on some other video. Okay. Anyway, so there you go. Uh, I'm sorry. I thought that the uh, video would actually be video. Oh, people are actually moving in this one. Not just still pictures. Okay. Well, that video really wasn't worth playing. <laughs> well, live and learn. I think it gave us an idea of the visibility in the cabin and... Um, now, interestingly, uh, there was still some fire in the engine. Now, whether that was part of the mechanical failure or just a jet pipe fire, uh, which is relatively common, you see that fire is right in the core of the engine. That's the actual bit that does all the work. That is the jet engine. Uh, all the outside stuff, uh, just the, <laughs> the fans, really, and the bypass. Um, so... Uh, uh, I saw a lot of comments uh, relating to this um, video saying, oh, they shouldn't have evacuated out of those left-hand doors. Uh, it's an interesting one because um, not every company has the same procedure. Uh, my company, we used to say, uh, the, the commander used to say evacuate on the right-hand side or evacuate on the left-hand side, depending on, which side the uh, aircraft the fire was. Um, the, uh, there was a lot of thought about that put into it, and they say, well, okay, you're in a very long airplane, um, and the fire's back there on the wing. What's wrong with using the front doors? You could use the, the, the one door, uh, and you could use the four door because they're quite a distance away from any potential fire. Uh, and so rather to save confusion, what they did was they said, don't try and stop people from evacuating on one side of the airplane or the other. Let the cabin crew assess the fire uh, at the door before they let the passengers go out. So it, the responsibility then fell upon the passengers. Uh, now, this fire is pretty small, and I can't see it getting any worse because it's all contained inside the engine, and there there is no real danger to the aircraft. The fire crews are on their way. That's relatively minor, um, so I, th there's, I don't think there's any concern about 
evacuating from every door. That's my personal opinion. Uh, and criticize me if you like, but that's that's what I think. Um, so uh, I think in this case, uh, the captain would have been wrong to have said don't evacuate because after all, you're trying to get people off the airplane within a certain short time frame so that there's little risk of um, people being trapped if things do escalate. Uh, and that's the whole point. Um, yeah, um, Ben in our live audience says his company procedure is just evacuate without specifying anything extra yeah. up to the cabin crew to look out and assess. My company, we say evacuate. And then if we are sure that maybe one of the exits is better than another, then we can also specify specific exits, but it's not a requirement. Yeah. Uh, and I think other companies have their own procedures. So uh, it's up to the company uh, to make that decision, and they train their crews accordingly. So there's no, there's no necessarily right or wrong way of doing that. Correct. All right. You ready for this next one? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Somebody said mm -hmm. something. Thanks. Thanks, Liz, for yelling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let me go here. Oh, look, there's to, Siberia. Yeah. Um, and there's a reason why you're looking at Siberia here. Um, and uh, we're going to go ahead and, uh, well, I tell you what, I think that maybe one of you uh, should read this. How about uh, Nick Camacho? You would, would you like to read this? Um, starting, sure. You don't have to read the uh, title, but you can start a uh, URL. Um, yep. A Ural Airlines uh, Airbus yeah. A320-200, registration uh, Romeo Alpha 73805, performing flight uh, U6-1383 from Sochi to Omsk, Russia, with 159 passengers and six crew, was on final approach to Omsk's runway 07, length 2,500 meters, already 200 feet. When the crew initiated a go-around, from about 600 meters MSL due to a hydraulics failure at uh, 741 local time. The aircraft climbed to flight level 180 and diverted to Novosibirsk. Novosibirsk. Sorry. I, I was, there's a phonetic, uh, phonetic write-out in our notes there, and I was trying to read that on the fly, so... <laughs> That sounded horrible. It didn't uh, work very well. <laughs> about 320 <laughs> nautical miles east of Omsk at a speed of over, at a speed over ground of about 260 knots over ground. However, needed to perform a forced landing on an open field near Kaminka. I think there's some few extra words in there. Sorry about that. Uh, about 110 nautical miles short uh, or west of Novosibirsk uh, at about 945 uh, local time. There were no injuries. The aircraft received damage to the gear and wings. Uh, Russia's uh, Rostransnador reported the aircraft carried out an unplanned landing safely near the village of Kaminka, 180 kilometers from uh, Novosibirsk. And there were no injuries. So close. So close. <laughs> Nova Sabirsky. That's not right? No. Just Bersk. No Nova key Sibirsk. at the end. Oh, okay. Yep. Sorry about that. The governor of yeah, no problem. Omsk reported a crew. Governor of Omsk reported the crew reported a hydraulic problem affecting <laughs> the brakes. Uh, 
Is, is English not your first uh, language, Camacho? <laughs> I know it's it's not very well written. Yeah. Uh, they were concerned the aircraft would not be able to stop on the runway. The crew therefore diverted to uh, Novosibirsk, where longer runways, uh, length 3,600 meters, are available sufficient to stop the aircraft despite the hydraulics failure. According to computations, there should have been sufficient fuel on board to reach the aerodrome. The West Siberian Investigative Committee opened an investigation stating the occurrence happened due to technical reasons. The airline reported the green hydraulic system failed on approach to Omsk. The commander decided to divert to an airfield with longer runways. The failure of the green hydraulic system affected operation of spoilers and flaps and increased the landing distance needed. However, the landing gear doors remained open as a result of the hydraulic failure and could not be closed. Together with strong headwinds, this increased fuel consumption. The commander realized they could not make it to uh, Novosibirsk and decided to land in an open field with the gear extended. Six buses have been dispatched to the landing site and take the passengers to Omsk and Novosibirsk. The passengers were supplied with food, water, and chargers for mobile phones. Very thoughtful. The luggage has been handed to the passengers too. Uh, ADSB data suggests nice, the aircraft began. Thank you for flying with us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the ADSB data suggests the aircraft began the diversion almost instantly after the go around, but maintained a low speed throughout the remainder of the flight, reaching a maximum of 260 knots over ground at flight level 180. The aircraft did not climb above flight level 180. And some photos there. Yeah. Yeah. It seems pretty likely that if you're flying at 18,000 feet with the landing gear partially open, you're going to run into fuel problems eventually, I would think. What's Yeah, what's not really clear is whether or not the gear was actually extended or just the landing gear doors, but either way, yeah. you got a lot of drag, you got a headwind. Um, yeah, the, the, your your computations for fuel required to go from Omsk to uh, Novosibirsk, um, you know, is, is definitely going to be a little bit off based on those factors. Um, and obviously, yeah, didn't quite work out, but yeah, I think we had a rule nice of thumb. To have this wonderful field, <laughs> indeed. I think we had a rule of thumb about twice the normal fuel consumption, or two and a half times. I'm trying to remember what it was on the yeah, at least three forty. Yeah, um, to give you just an indication uh, for uh, with the gear open or down low, uh, down. Yeah, but you see, it depends where the gear was when the green hydraulic system fell. If the green was if the gear was partially deployed, uh, then you might get the doors um, stuck open. Or if they tried to retract it, the gear had just enough time to get into the nestle, into the wheel wells, and then the hydraulics gave out, leaving the doors open. That that would be one thing. But normally, uh, yeah. once you got the gear down, if you lose the, the green hydraulics, you're not going to move the gear now. That's it. They're down. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, you've got to bear that in mind. And I'll tell you, it consumes having had that and one of my command sim check rides, uh, you know, we were supposed to be going to one airfield and the, all of a sudden it was blocked and uh, we had the gear down and a, a hydraulic failure. And we, now we had to divert. Um, if we had, uh, it's interesting if we'd gone through the standard instrument departure and then picked up the full instrument arrival we would have run out of fuel before we got to the airfield if you declared mayday and uh, <laughs> pointed in a straight direction straight there you could get there 
uh, and that was the kind of pass fail bit. If you uh, if you had an idea of what you were going to consume, and you took the um, the problem by its um, uh, by the scruff of the neck, uh, and said, "To hell with you, air traffic! I'm going in a straight line. You get everyone out my way." <laughs> Then um, you were you were going to save the airplane, uh, and that was the. But so I, this is I don't know whether this is the same. But uh, um, interestingly, they say they they couldn't get uh, flaps down. Well, no, you, you can't get the gear up and down without the green because it's a the green is the main system, and uh, you know this is uh, the the big hydraulic system that does all the heavy lifting on the aircraft. But there are two other hydraulic systems. Um, which will help you out with apps, slats, um, brakes, all the other um, uh, hydraulic services on the aircraft, spoilers, all that stuff. Um, so unless they have double hydraulic failure, which is pretty damned unusual, then, uh, you know, they, they should have been all right. Uh, admittedly, they, you know, you, sh you shouldn't accept an aircraft that, uh, you dispatched without one of the hydraulic systems. That shouldn't happen. But I'm just wondering what they're having to do over there to get around the restrictions on spare parts and that sort of thing. Are they cutting any corners? Definitely a factor. Uh, uh, hats off yeah, to the guys for a good landing and hats off to the airplane for surviving the good landing. You know, it's as good as the 737. There you go. Which landed on the levee. Do you remember that one? <laughs> yes. Oh, Indeed, yeah. yes. Yep. Back uh, outside of New Orleans. That's true, except they actually got it airborne from the levee again, which I thought was very impressive. <laughs> yeah. Well, the levee was dry. <laughs> Indeed it was. Yeah. There's a song. The Chevy to the levee. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you who know that song. All right. Um, yeah, good job. Uh, it's a good thing that field was there, nice and flat, and uh, worked out well for them, uh, it, pretty much. Is there, Nick, is there any reason that they wouldn't climb, or Jeff, that they wouldn't climb back up to a standard cruising altitude because of the hydraulic failure, or is that just because they expected it to be such a short leg? There is a probably, a, I, I'm trying to think, there is a Mac limit to the gear speed as well as an IAS limit. So if you climb too high, eventually you're going to hit that. Yeah. But I can't remember off the top of my head. I think I did a quick uh, look up, and this may or may not be right, but I think it was like 280 knots indicated slash 0.67 Mach. Okay. Uh, not sure why they didn't go any higher. Um, I think the reason why their ground speed was on the lower side on the um, flight radar 24 uh, readout is that uh, they were probably trying to honor the maximum speed for the uh, gear yeah. uh, doors extended. And uh, I think that the system, I, I think I quickly read somewhere that the, the system, if you exceed a certain speed with the gear door, gear doors out or still extended, then it's, it just goes on and on with uh, like some kind of a GPWS terrain warning or something going on. So, by the way, yeah. Airbus isn't. I was just going to say, yeah, I'll get off. Uh, they want the Airbus flag. Um, Luga, <laughs> uh, he uh, tells us it's 2.8 times the fuel. Uh, so, that is yeah. a lot of fuel. So, 
almost yeah. Why do we why do we need uh, the VS flag? Because um, they survived the landing. Air, this is a good. This is a this good. Airbus. Airbus. Oh no, that's not why I use this. <laughs> no, 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 that's a different flag. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe one of you have that flag. I don't. We right. we need a uh, it's um, Airbus for uh, amazing, and it's Boeing for uh, bulldust. Bullshit. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> well, uh, and regarding that 2.8 times figure there, that's assuming, I think, Ludger, that uh, the, uh, the gear was extended. And again, we're not really sure. What, you know, at what point was the, as, as Nick just mentioned, at what point was the green hydraulic system, you know, where, where, where was that failure? When? Uh, as opposed to, you know, the cycling of the gear and that kind of thing. So it may have been just the gear doors. Uh, it may have been everything extended, etc. And uh, yeah, Ben is also mentioning uh, something that is a, a good point. About five years ago, I think, uh, URL uh, landed in a field after takeoff from Zhukovsky due to a bird strike. Yeah, we covered it on the show. Oh, Remember that? Indeed, they just yeah, kind of fact, that jinked was the over show a little bit, work, in the, uh, wasn't it? And they were in a field of corn or something. I, I think so. Yeah, yeah remember pretty that. sure. It was about five years ago, I think. All right. Um, do you want to go straight to G and then wrap Do up? I want to go straight to G, Liz? Is that what you're what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Just suggesting it, maybe. Uh, I think that's a good suggestion. Uh, let's see. Feds are in. This is from Paddle Your Own Canoe. I mean, you can't go <laughs> more than a week without hearing from Paddle Your Own Canoe. Well, they got some great stories. Uh, they do. Uh, the FBI has opened an investigation after a hidden camera was allegedly found in the first-class lavatory during an American Airlines flight from Charlotte to Boston on Saturday morning. Federal officials officials, uh, federal officials have confirmed they are investigating a potential criminal act aboard American Flight uh, 1441, although they have not provided any further details about their investigation. Sources, however, claim that a hidden camera was found in an onboard restroom shortly after a young girl went into the lavatory. Speaking to the local news station, Boston 25, one passenger who was on the flight said the girl's mother came running up the aisle and prevented another woman uh, from entering the toilet, warning uh, that she believed there was a camera in the lavatory. Uh, the mom came up. She st- should I stop and go to getting to know us? <laughs> no, sorry. Okay. That was just, I, was, I was planning ahead. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, the mom came up. She stopped the other lady from going into the bathroom. She said, don't go in there, the passenger told reporters. Um, the Massachusetts State Police, alongside the FBI, responded to the complaint and met the Airbus A321 after it arrived at about 10 a.m. on Saturday. A preliminary investigation determined that a potential criminal act occurred mid-flight, which puts the incident under the jurisdiction of the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The FBI. A QM production. Starring Ephraim Zimblis, Jr. A spokesperson for American Airlines said the carrier was taking the allegation very seriously. Uh, the airlines cooperating with law enforcement, noting that it couldn't provide further information because the incident was under active investigation. Um, let's see. In, and then they uh, add for some, um, some further information. In 2019, a Southwest Airlines flight attendant accused a pilot of hiding a camera in an onboard lav and live streaming the feed to an iPad in the cockpit. 
the pilots, we covered this, uh, the pilots union later explained that the incident was a poor attempt at humor in which the pilot took a selfie video from the chest up fully clothed in the lavatory of a completely different airplane months before and then replayed it to the flight attendant when she entered the flight deck. So it was a, it was a gag that uh, failed. Gone wrong. Gone wrong. Yeah, for sure. All right. There you go. Um, I don't know. I wonder who put the, uh, if indeed there was actually a uh, camera hidden in the uh, lavatory, I'm wondering who is responsible for doing that mm-hmm. this time. I don't know. I don't know. Do we know anybody that flies for American? Uh, yeah, we know a lot of people that fly for American, Liz. And uh, I think every <laughs> every single one of them that I know are very suspicious under people. So, yeah, yeah very, very much so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anything else to add before we move on to our getting to know us segment? Yay? Nay? Yeah? No? Okay, let's go. Getting to know us. It's the time of the show where we get together and uh, figure out what everybody's been up to since the last episode. And uh, who would like to proceed first? Uh, I'll start because I've got nothing happened. Oh, I had my birthday. That was it. And that's me done and dusted. Happy birthday. (laughs) Thank you. That's that's quite all right. Yes, I I had a quick 69. (laughs) Well, (laughs) and and, and how did you? uh, No, I'm not going there. Um, No, don't go there. Okay, I I, I got nothing. Sorry. Right, neither have I. Uh, You're looking, uh, I'm I'm looking at my birthday present. There you go. My my new uh, camera, my new 4K camera is my. you're looking good now. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. My my best I say I've done. Really? And what about uh, like forthcoming? Um, bowls, bowls? No, nothing happening. No, well, I'm going on holiday next week, but I, I'll try. I don't know what the Wi-Fi will be like down in my holiday yeah. cottage. Nah, nah, go on holidays. There you go. Yeah, don't worry about it. Just take the time off and enjoy the holiday, and uh, we'll miss you and all that. Well, I might get bored. <laughs> in fact, I'm quite likely to get well, bored. I won't make a 69 comment at all. <laughs> okay. You could try the 68 if you want. It's not as much fun from what <laughs> I've been told. Okay. Um, yeah. Hey, Nick Camacho, where have you been? Uh, good. Uh, I've been working. Uh, I did make it to the uh, Stearman Fly-In last weekend. Uh, ended up Yay. booking a flight to... Um, Peoria, Illinois. So for me, it was was shot at Chicago and then backtrack a little bit to Peoria. Uh, But that was the quickest, uh, most cost-effective way for me to get there. And then I was going to have my mom uh, or my dad come pick me up. It was about a 45-minute drive, I think, from Peoria to Galesburg. And as I was sitting in the uh, the terminal at O'Hare waiting to catch my uh, Peoria flight, uh, my dad texted me and said, Hey, the, uh, steamer guys just got back from their little fly in and, uh, one of them's going to just come pick you up at the airport. So I said, Oh, that sounds a lot better than, uh, flying home. Um, I mean, driving from the airport out to the yeah. fly in. So, uh, I arrived at Peoria, walked about a hundred yards to the FBO. Um, they were gracious enough to, uh, wave the, um, parking fee for the about four minutes that uh, 
my uh, chauffeur was on the ground there, and we got uh, loaded up and flew back to uh, Galesburg in the Stearman. So that was a lot of fun. Oh, uh, man. What a way to travel. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, it would have been cool to be on a new Boeing and an old Boeing. Unfortunately, I was on a couple of those crummy Canadian airplanes, Canadian mailing tool oh, tubes. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Oh, yeah. you lucky man. <laughs> no, I don't think that's what he's talking no, about. No, no. A couple of Canada air, airplanes. Um, uh, the air show was a little bit uh, impacted, I think, by or the fly-in, I should say. It was a little impacted by some bad weather earlier in the week, so they ended up having 62 students. Um, which is a uh, a fairly low turnout. They're usually in the uh, uh, 80, 80 range. Um, and uh, I think two years ago, they had 150 Stearmans there. Uh, yeah, there's a picture of us taxiing out uh, in Peoria. And then uh, after we arrived back. Oh, 69. Oh, yeah. True. Wow. The air, I That's my burst. Oh, how about 69. that? That's yep. brilliant. That's your airplane. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on that one. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was a little it was a little slow going for us um, from a, uh, a business point, unfortunately, because of the low turnout. But we did manage to sell a lonely tow bar in the last uh, 15 minutes we were there as we were packing up on, on Friday night. Um, yep. One, we sold one tow bar and we sold a few little uh, implements or accoutrements for uh, to another guy that already had bought a tow bar previously. So, um, not the most successful week business wise, but it was the weather was decent by the time I got there and lots of airplanes to look at. So, it was a good time. Excellent. How many tow bars did you bring? Four. Ah, so you got 25%. Oh, yeah. Well. It's always a crapshoot because um, you know good. most of the guys show up there in in their airplane, and the tow bar doesn't fit in the airplane. So, mm -hmm. it uh, you know it's kind of dependent on how many people drive or local people or that sort of thing. Right. Okay. Anything else? Uh, nope. I think that's about it. Uh, my engine shipped All today. Right. I just got that email like an hour ago. So. Ooh, oh yeah. Yay. Oh, a little I, bit we should closer. mention that uh, I. Yeah, Nick uh, sent me part two of his uh, his second crew log regarding the engine um, debacle. No, not debacle. Engine issues on the, the Debonair. And uh, went ahead and uh, he sent that to me last week. I, I'm sorry. I apologize to Nick. I didn't see him send that to me. So I got it published today, though. So those of you Brilliant. who are patrons can listen to uh, crew log number two. Deep dive into uh, yeah. his engine. A deep dive into the engine of the Debonair. Yeah. How long does it take to ship that uh, engine all the way from China? <laughs> uh, it'll be three days from Mobile, oh, Alabama. <laughs> uh, I, which is uh, kind of a laughing matter, kind of not. Uh, Continental Engines, I, I think, is owned by China. But uh, they oh. do make some <laughs> of their... Uh, they do make some of their components there, I think. Um, but the, uh, I think the majority of the parts are uh, made, hopefully, in Alabama. Isn't there an Airbus factory in Mobile? Yes, uh, there is an Airbus factory in Mobile. Um, the Continental. Um Plant has been in Mobile for many, many years. Yeah, decades. it's been. Yep, it has. It's been there forever. 
Airbus is just a re- China recent, bought it. Um, recent acquisition. Yeah, it's uh, Avic. I think is the name of the Chinese uh, entity that uh, I don't know. Maybe a decade ago, went on a buying spree and bought up a bunch of uh, American um, aerospace assets. So uh, Cirrus airplanes, Cirrus design is owned by the same company, I think. Um, and when all that happened, that was a there was discussions of you know them papering the skies of China with general aviation and all this sort of stuff. It doesn't really seem that like that ever came to came to be, but they still have their hand in everything. Yep. Jeff. All right. Okay. My turn. Uh, let's see. Um, let me tell you first about a couple of meetups uh, coming up uh, in two days. Um, two of them to be exact. Uh, one, having to do uh, with the Airline Pilot Guy Show, APG Meetup. Uh, Paul Juracek is uh, hosting it in Toronto uh, on uh, this Friday at 4 p.m. at the Craft Beer Market. Uh, That's 1 Adelaide Street East, and he's made a reservation under his name, Paul Juracek. Um, And again, we'll put his contact information in the show notes. It's, and it's on the calendar too, Jeff. It should be in the calendar info. as well uh, with his contact info. Thank you, Liz. And uh, if you do contact him via email, make sure you put APG Meetup somewhere in the subject line so he'll so he doesn't miss it. And he also ended up getting a uh, temporary telephone number in case you want to text or call him. And that's, that's uh, area code 613-604-3449. And you can also get uh, a hold of Paul through Facebook Messenger. And again, that's Paul Yurichek, Y-U-R-I-C-E-K. And uh, so I hope that uh, everybody listening that's in the uh, Toronto area ends up uh, getting a meetup uh, together. And if you do, please make sure that you record and take pictures and all that kind of stuff because we'd love to hear about it. Uh, let's see. Also, um, the, uh, are you doing some kind of a tonsil inspection there? Uh, Nick, uh, uh, captain Nick, <laughs> what are you doing there? No, I'm playing with my, um, free, uh, crew dog, um, flying pilot's pen. Remember these? Sorry. I was okay. just, just, I was just getting bored. Yeah. So I was playing with it and it's got little okay. light at the end. Remember? <laughs> <laughs> just really yeah. boring so it, is this time for you to go and use the uh the the, the toilet or anything right now get all this stuff out before the show <laughs> <laughs> yeah we, we we tried to accomplish that uh camacho but it didn't work all right uh and also just a quick mention uh, another meetup, the uh, Latino Pilots Association having their big uh, aerospace industry expo. Actually, uh, it's hosted by United Airlines in uh, Kissimmee, Florida at the, what are they called? The Gaylord something or other, something or other. Um, uh, I can't remember Gaylord the name. Gaylord uh, Place. Uh, Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center. I found it. And uh, that's, uh, I think they're starting off with kind of a meetup, cocktail party, whatever, uh, tomorrow night. And then on Friday, uh, the uh, all day, they're doing the uh, 
the Aerospace Industry Expo and uh, the Latin Pilots Association. They're having a gala celebration uh, from 7.30 p.m. until late, it says. And then on uh, the 16th, on Saturday, um, at the Kissimmee Gateway Airport, there's a LPA food truck flying event from 10 to 3 p.m. So more information about that will be in the show notes. So check it out. And again, uh, we're recording the show on Wednesday. So unless you're watching this live, it's not going to make any difference. It's already it's already over. Anyway, hope you were able to make it. And uh, yeah, that's it. And then uh, let's see. I ended up uh, meeting up with uh, someone on uh yesterday actually on uh tuesday and i'm just going to hit the play button and i think i explain everything uh in the audio i find myself down near the acme headquarters again uh with another uh, meetup with a apg community member and uh this uh young man here young well everybody's young compared to me uh is is here uh, at acme headquarters to uh, do some Special training, ATP, CTP, don't ask me what that stands for. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, so he reached out. And uh, now uh, those of you who are uh, there every week in our live audience, our live chat room, you'll recognize uh, his um, his uh, moniker, which is Super Fred Driver. Super Fred Driver. We you know when I first saw Super Fred Driver, I'm thinking, this guy's name must be Fred. And then I... I didn't put the two together, but now I understand. You know, the Super C5. Uh, anyway, so uh, he reached out to me, said, I'm going to be down here for a few days, and let's get together. And so that's what we did. We are just uh, finishing up here. I thought it was going to be quieter outside, but I was wrong. Uh, we just finished up here at the Pit Boss uh, Barbecue and Spirits and uh, had some great barbecue and great conversation, as always. So anyway, enough of me. You hear my voice all the time. Let's hear from Super Fred Driver. Uh, do you, you want to use your real name or not? Yeah, my name's David. David, okay. Goodbye, David. Yeah, so I'm David, uh, Super Fred Driver on the show, and uh, here in Atlanta going through Acme's ATP CTP training, and uh, hopefully uh, going to be hired by them here in the next uh, couple years, and took the time to reach out to Captain Jeff, and we came down, grabbed some barbecue, and got to uh, have a great kind of offline conversation and get to know a fellow pilot. And uh, just a wonderful time, and it was a pleasure meeting you, sir. Well, thank you, sir. And actually, what we did most of the time is we made fun of all those other people that are always in our live audience. Yeah, you know who we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, just kidding. Anyway, so, um, yeah, it's always great. And as I always say, and I really do mean it, uh, the best part of doing the show is meeting up with this community that's been uh, that's, that's uh, grown up around it and really has become a much more important part of it than doing our little show every week but uh anyway very nice to meet you david nice to meet you as well captain jeff back to you in the studio jeff all right i, I got it nice throwback um so and also i'd like to thank uh, david he actually treated uh for the for the dinner the barbecue over there nice. at the uh, pit boss and uh had a good time so uh, as you mentioned he's there for the um the atp ctp course and uh Flying, I think, I think every simulator that he's going to be in uh, are are Airbus um, simulators, uh, the three hundred and fifty and the uh, three hundred and twenty, I believe. And uh, he said they're so easy to fly that even a moron could uh, could fly the darn thing. 
Um, and I said, yeah, that makes sense, actually, when I think about it. But we got a play. It's we a good play. job Nothing. that airline <laughs> recruited so many then. <laughs> we got to play Tim Van Ram's comment here. Uh, okay. Tim Van Ram in the live chat says, I think my cell phone was made in Alabama. It's a mobi- mobile phone <laughs> or mobile phone. <laughs> you know what? That used to bug the heck out of me. I used I went to junior high and high school, lived in uh, Mobile from 72 to 79. And uh, the people that weren't familiar with the way to pronounce it, I would, would always say, call it Mo- Mobile, Alabama. Mobile. It's not mobile. It's mobile. I know. It's not, that's not right either. <laughs> it's mobile. It's <laughs> 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 been so long since I've lived there. Have you forgotten? <laughs> I'm telling you, I am, I, I'm suffering from natural it, degeneration, though. I think, in my brain. <laughs> I think I really I do think I'm getting I have some long COVID symptoms uh, and and uh, brain fog. Stop it! <sighs> do I have anything else to yeah. say, or can Nick comment on the cover art? Do I have anything else to say? Yes, I have something else to say. Uh, the other okay, thing I was involved you. with is I'm singing. Oh yeah, and then the other thing I just just remembered. Uh, I I ended up uh, going with my choir director uh, and her uh, daughter and future son-in-law and his mom uh, to a concert in um, uh, Sandy Springs on uh, Sunday evening. It was a live outdoor amphitheater kind of event, and uh, Dr. Charles um, Jackson is a is Jane's husband, and he is a trumpet player, and he's a professor at Georgia State University. And he, I think, he plays every instrument known to man, uh, but he specializes with uh, playing trumpet, and he plays uh, trumpet in this uh, big giant big band uh, swing, not giant, a big band uh, playing swing music mostly. And they had a nice concert uh, there um, on Sunday evening, and I, I was going to show some pictures uh, from that, but I didn't think about it until just now. So uh, I'll put those notes. in uh, the show notes so you can, you Which can see, way, uh, see all that. Swing? Uh, swings both ways. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> very good. Please everybody then. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, yeah. Nick, that's really good that stuff. Yeah. Let's yeah. talk about the cover art, Nick. Uh, well, this was by special request from uh, Lord and Master that he uh, liked the clogged <laughs> cabin. He wanted he wanted someone's feet up on the back of a an airline chair wearing clogs. Yeah, the big clogs on the yeah um, kicking the back seat of the back of the seat <laughs> after layering Yay. over twenty different uh, layers in Photoshop and using all the AI programs I knew. Uh, except Chat GPT, I managed to get a pair of legs angled right, wearing mm-hmm. clogs, which came from where else, uh, and then some seats, which came from somewhere else, inside an aeroplane cabin, which came from somewhere else. Uh, and then I added a few uh, fancy bits. So there's a, a sort of control panel <laughs> between the seats, which is completely wacky. But uh, for the British and some Canadians amongst us, yeah. there's a little um, nod to uh, the mouse that danced in an old uh, windmill from Amsterdam wearing clogs. Uh, the mouse was no, wearing the clogs, not the windmill, uh, sung by uh, Max Bygraves <laughs> uh, and others. 
And um, so that's being played on the telly at the time. So that's what the d dancing mouse is all about. Of course, if you put your clogs up on the seat, you're going to get an angry glare from a passenger. Now, someone said <laughs> it resembled uh, an American person. Uh, Colin Kaepernick. Uh, Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick. Kaepernick. Well, I don't Kaepernick. know, Colin. Um, I reckon it looks more like Frono's photos, but uh, whoever it is, um, it's uh, he looks very angry, uh, glaring. I found the show number. And uh, yeah, Liz found the show number. And if if you look down at the bottom of the um, center um, separator between Control the two panel. seats. There were some black lines there, and they I just needed to emphasize them ever so slightly to get a 584 out of that. So look at the bottom of the center console area, and of course the TV screen's got our logo on. We love it. By the way, the, uh, the lines and everything on that, there are about five or six layers just on that TV screen. Uh, but anyway, you don't need I to know more. I think it was a lot of work. It was. I think that's what he's trying to tell you. Yeah, yeah indeed. So, okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for going through all that hassle. Uh, Nick. You're I, very I, welcome. I really Actually, do appreciate it's, it's that. Pretty quick using um, Photoshop's new uh, AI system. Um, it, it is surprisingly uh, easy to manipulate. It's very good. Okay. Well, good. Uh, uh, next time, I will not suggest anything. No, no, no. You go ahead. I, I enjoyed the challenge. <laughs> okay. Uh, very good. All right. Well, I guess uh, with that, uh, we shall move on to the coffee fund. And here we go. Jeff Smith. Johnny, how much more coffee? Sure thing. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. Oh, it must be time to go and use the toilet. Okay, I'll be right back. Oh, wait, no, I can't. I'm doing the coffee fund. All right, the coffee fund is your way to uh, support our show financially if you have the financial resources to do it. And uh, we have a couple of different ways to do it. Uh, one is the coffee fund classic method, which is via PayPal. You can make a, a one-off or two-off or even a recurrent um contribution via the Coffee Fund Classic method, if you'd like. Although, if you're going to do that, uh, we would recommend that you, you go to Airline Pilot, no, patreon.com slash Airline Pilot Guy. Uh, you can become a patron of the show, is what I'm trying to say. And uh, since the last episode, we have, uh, well, sort of two new pa uh, patrons. Actually, um, a, a new uh, producer level, Vim Sotertz in, uh, I'm sorry, I probably messed up your last name, Vim. Uh, in Belgian, he's a Belgian dude. And uh, he uh, signed up to be a producer of the show. And we met him at the London meetup uh, outside the uh, Royal Air Force Museum there at that, uh, at that little pub. And then also Daniel Ladd. Uh, is uh, he moved from producer to executive producer. Woo! So yay! Thank you very much for that, uh, Daniel. For um, you know, we, we try to up our standards here and uh, up yours. Yeah. No, Daniel uh, upped his. <laughs> so um, anyway, that didn't really work. That joke just failed. I'm sorry. Uh, oh well. Um, oh, look who's here. Go ahead and shoot myself. Ah. Hey, look at that. 
<laughs> it wasn't me. Was I didn't. Gone, I didn't do that. Steph. I didn't do that. <laughs> do what? Shoot you. Oh, okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure who Perfect did. Perfect timing. Yeah, it was great timing. Hello, Steph. How Hi. are you? Good. How are you? Fine. Thank you. Um, Oscar, she's got her Unity on. Yes. Do you have? Are you on Unity? Um, no. Unity comms. Well, no. I can be. Of course not. Uh, if you'd like to, but no, no uh, requirement. We'll just talk about you behind your back. Hey, Steffi. Um, I'm here. I'm here. Yep. Okay. Perfect. How you been there. up to? Work. Yeah. So uh, we just finished the uh, getting to know us segment and uh, talked about the cover art and the coffee fund. But uh, before we move on to feedback, let's uh, hear what uh, Dr. Steph has been up to. I have been working a lot. Yay. Um, Yay. <laughs> and yes, thank you for the applause for that. Um, not sure that that's necessary, but uh, I was supposed yeah. to fly last weekend, but the weather had other plans. So that really didn't happen. I think we did a whopping total of three loads of jumpers all weekend. Um, hmm. uh, but it was nice for running. So I did a, a long run, like 16 miles, just around and around the airport property on Sunday. Hmm. Okay. And sounds like fun. Yeah, it was fun. No, and <laughs> yeah, more work. So nothing exciting. I'll have more exciting yeah. stuff in the next couple of weeks, hopefully, to talk about. Okay, travel and well, very good. Well, we're glad you were able to make it. Yeah, um, sorry for being a little delayed. It was a busier than usual day and shorter staff than normal, and all the all the things. Well, that's life. Yes, you know? can't do anything about that. Hmm. Well, I guess you could. You could quit and retire, become an I airline I need more pilot. money yeah. before I can do that, like to oh, pay my bills. Okay. I'm not, yeah, oh. I've got a, a few years. <laughs> That's highly overrated. A few years left of like <laughs> things to pay for, hopefully, you know. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. So why don't we go ahead and move on to uh, the feedback segment of our show. So here we go. Captain, incoming message. Now, we mentioned during the Getting to Know Us segment, uh, Paul uh, Juracek um, in the Youngstown, Ohio area, um, is hosting that meetup in Toronto in a couple of days. And But he, I guess about a little over a week ago, I think, he sent us in some audio yeah. feedback via SpeakPipe. And um, you'll have to recall or remember that if you do use SpeakPipe, to send us some audio, there's a 90-second limit there. So uh, that's uh, what Paul's referring to here at the end. I think I think he even mentions at the beginning here that it's like take seven. <laughs> so uh, let's hear what Paul has to say. Take seven. Hey, 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 this is Paul from between Cleveland and Pittsburgh. How's it going? It is an APG weekend here at my house. Hey, hey, fun, fun. Currently, I'm listening to the episode of number of the beast and then later i'll be listening to the giant what the heck who came up with this title the giant laters for foreplay for plane and uh tifo tillerman and while listening to the number of the beast i came up with this question there's many captains out there that are retired and still nice and sharp for example captain nick perfect example when we were at the dayton air force base museum 
we were in an F4 display, and this is for kids to climb in and to get pictures taken. Well, anyways, I convinced Captain Nick to climb in. Well, getting ready to take his picture. And what does he start doing? He starts running starting procedures for the F4. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. You're not going to be able to start this thing. Anyway, so my question is, do retired captains ever get together in maybe a group of some type and maybe get a certain scenario and start running procedures in a friendly <laughs> competition, see who gets quick, who gets the quickest? Okay, running out of time. Anyways. Thanks for the show. Take care. And, uh. He ran out of time. He ran out of time with, <laughs> and, uh, so he has some unfinished thought out there, Paul. <laughs> and if you go to uh, Toronto on Friday, ask him <laughs> what, what, was what was the last thing you were going to say there? <laughs> um, and, um, Paul, I think you must have hit your head against the wall. I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe Captain Nick has a different idea here, but that thing that you just proposed sounds like the worst thing in the world that I could ever want to do. <laughs> you um, don't want to uh, have competitions about practicing your... Well, I don't even like really... I'm not a super competitive person to begin with, but especially running procedures. No. Yeah. No, thank you. No. Um, so I'm going to say it's that, not uh, a thing that that happens. No, I'd uh, well, I've boil, never boiled my head. <laughs> <laughs> I've never experienced that myself. Um, never heard of that ever happening ever. <laughs> so, oh, look at Zeta. Zeta's uh, <laughs> she's attractive off. companion. <laughs> yeah. she, she's not interested Beautiful. either. She's, Beautiful dog. Um. Anyway, that's what's happening in the background of. Uh, uh, Captain Nick's video. If you're listening to the audio, we're Sorry. talking about. Again. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, it's like, um, how old are you again, Captain? Nick? About three. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's it. Six nine nine minus six equals three. Ah, and that must be it. Indeed, sixty nine. <laughs> All right. Um, the next two sort of go together, Jeff. Okay, the next couple of items uh, kind of go together, and uh, let's see—they all involve, they both involve 5G and radar altimeters. Uh, hello, crew. This is from Sam Bolog uh, with AD 2021-23-12, the June 30, 2023 deadline for Part 121 aircraft with radar altimeters. That don't meet the required performance will be restricted from flying ILS Cat 2, Cat 3 approaches, Autoland, and HUD operations. Head up display. How much do you see 5G and radar altimeter interference affecting the commercial sector in the US and abroad as a result of limited low weather approach options in certain areas? Additionally, my cousin is a C 130J uh, evaluator pilot, I guess, EP was stationed in Japan several years ago during 5G testing. He mentioned extreme disturbances in his radar altimeter during these periods that limited usage. Any insight on military waivers or an impact on 5G across the fleet? Um, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about that here in a second, but we're going to go ahead and cover this next piece of feedback that also deals with 5G protection uh, from Vernon Tryon in uh, some fort in Colorado. Yeah. <laughs> um, while waiting for a doctor's appointment, I ran across this news story about your sister airline protecting its fleet from 5G. I didn't know you could do that. 
Um, he said, sorry, no signature music in the background. Yep, we're just having to read the words instead of listen to Vernon's wonderful voice. Uh, and the article that he links to is from the uh, simpleflying.com website. Uh, Delta Airlines' entire fleet is now protected against 5G signals. Until recently, almost 200 of the uh, carrier's aircraft didn't have the necessary upgraded altimeters. And uh, let's see, they uh, Delta successfully upgraded its entire fleet to protect to protect against interference from 5G signals. Uh, the rule change enacted by the FAA restricts airlines during low visibility Mark landings due to know. potential 5G interference with altimeters. And although the majority of commercial aircraft in the U.S. were already equipped to handle 5G signals, Delta retrofitted about 20% of its planes to ensure compliance and avoid operational disruption. And by the way, I think most of those in that 20% were kind of the older airplanes like uh, some of the uh, Airbuses. Uh, Delta, um, by the way, the um, 717 fleet, I hear, because they fly them over at Delta as well, um, they had no issues at all. Hmm. Um, Yeah. Uh, Let's see. So, 5G, uh, going back to Sam's um, comment and question, how much we do we see 5G and radar altimeter interference affecting the commercial sector in the U.S.? I can only speak for ACME and ACME's sister airline, Delta. Um, not sure how all the other major carriers and, and not-so-major carriers are handling the situation and you know what percentage of their fleet is all ready to go with that, but I have a feeling that um, that everybody is pretty much covered and good to go with the old 5G interference thing. UH Blackhawk in our live audience says he hasn't noticed any anomalies at all. And same with, uh, <laughs> I love this name, KFC make good winglets. <laughs> I love it. Uh, and he said, same. So uh, whatever airlines they uh, represent, um, <laughs> uh, they, uh, they're good to go. And he said, it's probably just an Airbus issue. <laughs> Is that is UH Blackhawk uh, really just Miami Rick in disguise in the, uh, the chat room? Here? <laughs> I, don't, hmm. I don't think so. But. I don't think so. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Um, okay. So, anything else? Uh, anybody? Want I to don't add know enough or? about it. I haven't. Yeah. I'm not aware of any like flights I've been on being impacted by it. Yeah. I I, I just remember back to when the issue. Uh, emerged and it wasn't going to be so much of a concern in Europe because there's a bigger buffer between uh, the use of those frequencies uh, and um, the frequencies that adults work on. Uh, and then that have been to do with the angle of the antennas as well, I think, in Europe. Is yeah, that, than that also. Here in the US. Um, yeah. So we weren't anticipating a major problem. And I certainly haven't heard of any huge issues over here. Although I, I do have like this buzzing in my head all the time now, ever since they turned 5G on. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe uh, that, that might have something to do with my brain fog. <laughs> <laughs> <Could be. laughs> um, let's see. UH Blackhawk says, if uh, there has been an anomaly, I've attributed it to violent input. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, well, now he makes a good point. Uh, no, I'm not going to even get into the electronic devices. No, don't go there. Okay. Let's, let's move on. <laughs> now, what about this next item? Who's going to cover that one, Jeff? Uh, this next item, which would be uh, six? six. Well, yeah. hmm, that's a good question, Liz. Who should cover 
this next item. I'm thinking I know the perfect person to cover this, and his name is Miami Rick. Okay, so this is from Sam. This is uh, item six, uh, feedback from Sam. Uh, In episode 583, Captain Jeff mentioned the GA fatality rate compared to the airlines, while Captain Nick had a related point about GA performance charts. As I tell students, the charts are developed by a test pilot in a new airplane with a new engine and propeller. The performance is under ideal conditions. Test pilots will do things to an airplane that would turn an owner white. Landing performance numbers that can be used for uh, by marketing are more important than preventing wear and tear on tires and brakes. I point out to GA pilots, airline performance charts have penalties, and we use factored data, giving us a margin of error to compensate for a less than perfect pilot and airplane. If an airline pilot flying weekly, getting a check ride every eight months, uses factored data, shouldn't we as GA pilots? I developed the attached uh, takeoff and landing document for the use of my clients. It has room for data and describes how to derive factored data from the pilot operating handbooks and aircraft flight manuals. In the best of conditions, for example, I have the multiply chart data by 1.5, which would be, I guess, a 50% add-on, right, uh, to get factored data for takeoff and landing, giving them an added margin of safety. So if the book says we need 800 feet for takeoff in a perfect day, well, we need 1,200. If conditions aren't ideal, such as a contaminated runway, I list additional factors for them to use. In addition, I have single-engine pilots figure an accelerate stop distance. This is normal in multi-engine, but not normally used in single-engine flying, and is the distance required to accelerate to takeoff speed and then abort the takeoff. Even if a pilot chooses to take off on a runway shorter than this distance, something that is legal in GA, they at least know if uh, that if they accelerate to takeoff speed, then abort, that they will run off the end of the runway, and they can plan accordingly. To quickly touch on another point related to the GA accident rate, I point out to my clients the frequency of training given to airline pilots. Even though we fly on a regular basis, we go to the simulator every eight months for training while also doing online courses every quarter. A GA pilot, by comparison, need only see an instructor every other year for a flight review consisting of one hour of ground and one hour of flight instruction. I encourage GA pilots to try to do something with a flight instructor every eight months and to do online courses. Many free courses are available through the FAA on their website, faasafety.gov, and range in time from 15 minutes to a few hours and cover every aviation subject imaginable. I try to set the example. As an airline pilot, I'm not required to get a flight review as my as my airline training does count. Yet, since I also fly GA, I try to do things once a year that count as a flight review and take an online course through the FAA every month. As always, keep the sunny side up. Sam Dawson. So what do you think, Rick? I think, uh, first of all, I want to commend Sam for being such a great professional because he is. it's true. Uh, you technically don't have to put yourself through a manual flight review if you are, you know, getting recertified um, somewhere else. Uh, but the fact that he's flying GA and um, putting in the time um, and the effort to remain current and GA aviation as well is um, is very, very commendable. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's uh, the safe thing to do and the, and the right thing to do. As far as the, um, the subject of this um, feedback, I, I found it, I found it great. And it's something that I, I, I thought about, um, I've thought about as well. Uh, I mean, you, you, you talk about comparing the GA operation versus the commercial 
airline operation and uh, how I feel like from medical certification standards to maintenance standards uh, to training standards to currency standards on the commercial side of things is way um, uh, more involved and a lot more uh, stringent and uh, compared to GA. Um, and it shouldn't be that way because at the end of the day, if something goes wrong, it, it can go wrong in GA as well. Um, and um, the consequences can be just as bad. Um, as far as using factor versus in factor data, um, yeah, uh, we as airline pilots, uh, you know, every time I send for landing performance data, and I get the uh, data back from um, you know, via ACARS, I'll get a landing distance required for my weight and the, and the current conditions. I know that those numbers are very, very conservative. And uh, in our case, a 50%, 15%, 15 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%
Are we back to the present day now? Oh, wait. This was it. Oh, hey. Very We're here traveling. <laughs> Thanks. I was just watching the scrolling banner at the bottom of the screen. It said this was pre-recorded yesterday. Or was it? Yeah. Or what day or was, was it? it the day or before. Was it the day before or today? Who knows? I was just having fun with that, and then I kind of lost track of where the Depends video was. Depends on which uh, time zone yeah. you're going Depends by. on which side of the international dateline you're on. Exactly. Uh, Rick was in Tokyo. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what the heck day it was. <laughs> I guess it was probably, uh, I don't know when it was. was All right. It, it, it may have been tomorrow. For him yesterday for you. <laughs> it may have been last tomorrow. Night? I'm not sure. Or last, maybe right now. Maybe, no, that can't be right. I don't know. It was yesterday well, for you, today for him. Well, Camacho's looking it up in his paperwork here. He's trying to figure it out. <laughs> Someone's <laughs> got to keep us straight notes. on uh, time zones and dates and things. <laughs> Camacho? Yeah, I'm the guy. I'm the guy to go to. <laughs> He's for that. It. <laughs> no. Oh my. All right. Well, that was fun. Okay. Anything um anybody want wants to add regarding uh Sam Dawson's uh awesome uh takeoff and landing data card? No, only that I'm gonna cool. print it out. Yeah. It's not a terrible idea. There we go. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. And then, uh, yeah. you know, margining or, or factoring in more adverse conditions and that kind of thing. One point, that's 50% additional. Uh, that's a lot of margin, uh, margin I feel like. But lot. I guess, you know, yeah. uh, if you're taking into account someone who's a newer pilot and an older airplane. 50%? I don't know. Um, <laughs> 50%. Oh, hey, 50%. that's why we got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you stole that. Copyright. <laughs> Yeah, Copyright the only comment I've, I'd have is uh, the space for the arrival latest that would never work for JFK. <laughs> you have to write very small. Not nearly like enough room. <laughs> <laughs> you have to write on the back. Numerous cranes <laughs> in the area. Yeah, <laughs> you got to filter out uh, the the important information or filter in the important information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, very good. All right. Number. Well, good, good, good. Let's uh, move on with this next item of feedback from Texas Alishok. He was in the chat room. I uh, he was in the uh, chat room earlier. I don't know mm-hmm. if he's still hanging with us or not. Um, so uh, he says, greetings, Captain. Or first of all, the subject line is, what's so historic about Wendover? Greetings, Captain Jeff and APG crew. So it happened again. I was just minding my own business when I stumbled onto something. I was heading toward Salt Lake City from Nevada because my install group was going uh, go-karting at a place called The Grid. Those mm. familiar with the Salt Lake area may have heard of it. Have you heard, heard of that? Of I've heard of it. I don't know it. I haven't been, but I've heard of it. Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. When I stopped in the town of Wendover, Utah, West Wendover, Nevada, nope. yeah. for some lunch, as I was checking my phone, I, I would imagine that uh, must be somewhere near the border. It's right uh, as on the I was checking my, yeah, <laughs> uh, checking my phone for places to eat, I noticed something that said "Historic Wendover Airfield." Well, what's so historic about it? I decided to find out. Initially founded by the Western Pacific Railroad as a railway stop, Wendover later became the location of a U.S. Army Air Force's training base. Today, it has a joint population of around 5,500 and is the home of three major casino resorts, which provides the area's main income. As luck would have it, I had come across it while there was an air show going on. I got up to the entrance just as their card reader broke, and I didn't have cash. They just stamped me and said, go on in. So that was nice of them. I made it to uh, made it a point to buy a T-shirt. Inside, they had various displays, as you would expect. 
I saw the vehicle that will be replacing Humvees in the coming years, which I thought kind of looked like the Warthogs from the Halo games. Got up close and personal with an Apache attack helicopter, and I got to go aboard a C-17. Uh, meanwhile, there were they were sending planes up in ones or twos to do various routines, but it seemed to be mostly to give people something to watch while doing other things. I'd arrived around midday, so if there was an actual program, it was probably in the morning. It was nice to have something to watch while I was in line for the C-17, which was very slow moving, taking about an hour and a half, I think. At one point, while a pair was up, I put my earbuds in and hit shuffle on my flight playlist. Uh, He said, whenever I have to fly somewhere, I frequently play this while we're taking off. Do you ever notice how, when you're listening to music, it sometimes seems as though the world is acting in time to it? The first song that came up was called Love Dance from Cirque du Soleil, a show, Ka. Is that right? Ka? K-A? Ka. Ka, In the... uh, or if the really bad version is called Ka Ka. <laughs> In the original production, it's just that. Oh, come on. You got, somebody's got to laugh better than that. I laughed. I know you did. But you're the only one, Liz. You're the only one that laughed. So let me do this. Now I feel better. Um, in the original production, it's just that, a dance. But if you watch James Cameron's Cirque du Soleil Worlds Away, it's done as an aerial ballet with two performers performers dangling from straps suspended from the ceiling. As I listened to this, the aerobatic show suddenly went from a thrilling stunt show to an emotional dance in the sky as the two planes flew together, then apart, and twirled around each other. Or maybe I'm just being overly sentimental. Or maybe drinking a little bit too much uh, whiskey or something. Um, Let's see. In any case, by the time I got... Is he being indulging? (laughs) Is the airport in... Wendover or West Wendover? Because that probably would answer the question better. Oh, that would make a difference. Yeah. yeah. Utah or Nevada? I think it's in Utah. I think it is in Utah. Ah. Mm-hmm. No drink, well, then no there's drinking. no drinking there. <laughs> <laughs> but there are casinos around there, they said. The oh, casinos, yeah, casinos are in Nevada. Yeah. You could probably drink uh, in both places, though. You know, I've had some darn good beer in Salt Lake City, actually. Yep. yep. Um, I got a lot of good Good uh, beer there. There's anyway, good distillery uh, back to uh, anyway. Moving on. Yeah, moving on Squirrel. here with um, uh, Texas and Lashok's uh, feedback. Sorry, Texas. They're just so long. Sometimes we just get distracted. <laughs> uh, let's see. Where were we? Oh, in any case, by the time I got to the cockpit, the ultimate end of the queue. Uh, I guess he's talking about the C seventeen now. Though inside the cargo bay, the loadmaster did demonstrations of how the loading mechanisms work. It was almost over. The Apache took off and everyone else started packing their stuff away. And I had to get on to meet with the rest of my group. Later in the week, I had a chance to come back and check out the museum itself and finally found out what was so significant about this place. It was the site of bomber training, apparently all aspects of it. The bomb dropping, navigation, and training of the gunnery crews for which they had one of the largest aerial gun ranges in the country. But its real claim to fame is this is where they trained to drop the bomb. Captain Nick may know this, but didn't mention it in his plane tale on the subject. In any case, they have several artifacts from that program, including one of the little boy, one of the little boy weighted mock-ups and fragments from ones that were actually dropped. Other displays have the Browning 50 calendar guns recovered from a B-17 that took off Caliber. on a training flight. I'm sorry. Uh, other, dis- well, what did I say? Calendar. Calendar. Oh, 
Uh-huh. Like, you want to stick it in your calendar? Well, let me try that again then. Other displays have the Browning 50 calendar. Uh, <laughs> do it again. <laughs> I'll just say cow. Other displays have the Browning 50 cal guns recovered from a B-17 that took off on a training flight and was discovered in the mountains six months later. A display on Morse communication and one of the tools that navigators used, something I've always been rather fascinated by. They also have an antique standing radio that may have actually been owned by Paul Tibbetts himself. It's currently rigged to play the news bulletin on the Pearl Harbor attack and President Roosevelt's Day of Infamy speech. Uh, Outside, there is a driving tour you can go on, tracking down the historical markers scattered throughout the base, which is quite a sprawling complex. Many of the original buildings are still there, some of which appear to be under restoration. But getting the entire complex into shape would be a tall order. I've included a link to their overall plan in the show notes. The museum itself occupies the Officer Club building, which they also rent out for events in the large dance hall. But they also have more displays in a smaller building towards the flight line and World War II era control tower that they have restored. You can't go inside it, but you can climb to the top and peer in. But when I was there, the wind had kicked up, so I opted not to. They also have a large hangar there called uh, the Enola Gay Hangar. You could probably guess why. In addition, they have a memorial they're trying to build dedicated to the memory of all those who gave their lives before even getting to the front. Training could be just as dangerous as combat at times, especially with aviation back then. They have a collection uh, established to raise funds to get it built. If anyone wants to contribute, they have donations set up on their website. Anyway, another small museum that I feel deserves attention. Uh, This is the Texas and LeShock signing off. And he does such a great, I mean, he uh, is our our uh, aviation museum expert, I'd say, here at the APG. When you're in the RV, you'll have to go to some of these places. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to do that, Liz. She's suggesting that I visit some of these places that Texas and Lashok has been telling us about when I'm uh, well, doing my RV life. Oh, look at that. Utah. He, um, so Utah, I guess that's the answer to where the uh, museum is? Yeah. Okay. Very good. All right, looks like it's now time for our plane tale uh, for this week. And uh, the old pilot has entitled it Rocket Man. I'm singing. That's not what I meant to push. (laughs) (laughs) Yet it was perfect. It was perfect, though. You're right. (laughs) Okay, here we go. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales, Rocket Man. I first met Matt about 25 years ago when I volunteered to help out at a local air training corps squadron, teaching the youngsters about aviation. Matt was on the staff and we became close friends. Little did I realise then the depth and breadth of his knowledge, particularly in the area of spacecraft. Matt's moving away from my area back to Northern Ireland where he came from, which will be a sad day for me. But before he left, I managed to get him to open up for a little while about his life as a spacecraft engineer. Matt, how did you get into satellites and spaceships and all that kind of stuff? Where did it all get kicked off? 
Well, it originally started when I was about 12 years of age, and we were looking at things like Sputnik going over in the back garden. I've really got my parents to thank for that on the basis that uh, they noticed it, as they noticed most things about us growing kids. They looked after every one of us. There were four of us. And for one of my birthday presents, I got a book by Carl Jansky on communications. And that kind of triggered it off into getting into radio and so on. Um, I then started my apprenticeship at Pi Telecommunications, where I learned about televisions and radio in a much greater depth. And when they closed down in Northern Ireland, I joined the Royal Air Force. And uh, that was the best thing I ever did. I went into the trade of ground radar and was first stationed up in the wilds of Scotland on a beacon up on top of a hill. So I needed something to do. So remembering what I'd done on my initial course in the Air Force, I started playing around with radios and built myself a little transmitter using stuff out of an existing radio. And the next thing was a knock on a door one day when I was off duty from the radio interference branch from uh, Glasgow <laughs> because I was transmitting on the light program and blotting out Glasgow. <laughs> I mean, as far as I was concerned, me and my mates were just talking to each other from room to room, but it was getting as far as Glasgow, which is about 60 miles away. And I was given the option of going to court and suffering the pains of being fined or something similar or obtaining my radio amateur's license by visiting another radio amateur in a place called Tane Lone on the Mull of Kintyre which of course uh, I accepted and decided that was the better way to go so my world of communications expanded considerably having met this chap, he was an amazing guy all of his equipment was valve based, he had 15 inch racks everywhere, 6 foot high in his room an electric fire element to burn off all the excess power on his transmission so that he didn't exceed the legal limits. It was it was wonderful. Cut a long story short, I got posted out to Neatishead to heavy radar, very long-range radar, and one day reading through the paperwork that came in from the station, there was a volunteer post going for a programmer. Now, I'd been teaching myself programming on the uh, radar system, and I applied for the post. So I went down to the unit on a Wednesday, had an interview on the Thursday, got posted on the Friday, and arrived back at that unit at Okanga on the Monday to start work. <laughs> it was quick. So that sort of got me into the industry of spacecraft. I arrived at the unit and got the shock of my life. There's a 60-foot, 200-ton dish. And, ah, oh, it was heaven. I was in heaven. I spent the next... Nine years at that station, it took me three years to rewrite the ground station software, which is an entirely different story. We'll tell another time um, as to how that came about. But I had to learn a great deal very quickly about Britain's spacecraft, the Skynet 2 system, command and control, because I was going to rewrite the software to actually manage it. And it was there that I learned that a spacecraft, and there's a difference between a spacecraft and a satellite, very big difference. A spacecraft you have to manage, control and fly and keep in station. A satellite is something which drifts around the Earth in its own natural orbit. We put it up there. If you get it right, it flies right. If you get it wrong, it'll burn up. Um, whereas the spacecraft, our spacecraft, our military ones, were at geostationary orbit. So they're traveling at uh, 25,000 miles an hour around the Earth and the interesting thing is that because they're traveling at the same speed as the Earth at the equator, they appear to be in the same position all the time. 
called geostationary, but they're going like the bats out of hell. Moved into that, and I got, I just literally got swallowed up. I suppose I was about 25 when we arrived here, and the rest of my life was involved in that sort of thing. So you, you did a lot in military work, and I know some of it's highly classified. It certainly was at the time. What about your move into the civil spacecraft industry? Yeah, it's very interesting, actually, because eventually the Ministry of Defence or the government decided that we didn't need to have service people looking after our ground stations. It could be run by civilians. And the services um, were, were diminishing in size considerably. Um, I ended up uh, at, a, at a company uh, called Inmarsat, the International Maritime Satellite Organization, uh, under the auspices of Serco. That's where I got really into it. I mean, with the knowledge that I had, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I had hardware knowledge as an engineer and, of course, as a programmer. And apparently, though I didn't realize it at the time, there weren't very many of us around. So I got swallowed into Inmarsat, and I spent the next umpteen years thoroughly involved in the launching and the birth of Inmarsat. Inmarsat was a, a virgin company of 27 nations. Their international agreement was to provide communications for everyone on the earth, non-military, non-political, if you can ever get such a thing. But the idea was that it would be a set of geostationary satellites providing global communications for anybody who wanted to use it. In addition for that, of course, being maritime, they wanted to provide services for ships at sea. And as a result, of course, it was the beginnings of the end of the requirement for a ship's uh, officer to have a uh, Morse license because Inmarsat was up there all the time. It had channels specifically for ships at sea. It had channels specifically for emergency communications. And it ended up with the skipper, the chief engineer, and the mate having a dongle round his neck. If we pressed the button, it immediately activated a transmitter on board the ship, which sent a signal via the satellite through the emergency channel, giving the position of the uh, vessel, its name, its crew, the number of souls on board. Just amazing. And I mean, why do you need Morse code anymore for SOS? No, that's a good point. Uh, what were you specifically involved in? Well, I was just one of a team. And one of my jobs was to look after the spacecraft side. And the interesting thing is that it came about that uh, one of the 27 members decided that if we did not encrypt the command and telemetry uplink and downlink, they were not willing to pass their traffic through the spacecraft based on the fact that if you didn't encrypt it, anybody could put an uplink to it, take command of the spacecraft, move it, switch things on and off, do what you like. So but I received this letter from this, this particular country. I looked at it and thought, this is serious, took it up to the boss who looked at it and then expected me to explain it because he didn't understand it. And it was really quite fundamental. Either we uh, encrypt our uplink and downlink, or we lose 80% of the traffic of the spacecraft. And that meant millions of pounds per day. I mean, when you think 860 odd million pounds to build the spacecraft, and reckon to have a five-year life, it would cost you another 800 plus million pounds to launch it, 
put it on station, test it, make sure it's working, and then you start making money. And you make vast amounts of money per day if it works. And it's a huge risk getting it on station. Less and less of a risk the more and more we know about it. But uh, in those days, a big risk. Quite a few were lost. One of the military satellites which we launched at one stage, the rocket was going up into, into space and all of the dishes and satellite antennas were following the telemetry from the rocket as they followed the path and moved their tracking. And all of a sudden, there was this antenna, this dish, which was looking at the information from the spacecraft. It started to go back down towards the Earth again. And what had happened was the spacecraft had fallen off the top. Fallen off the top? Literally fallen off the top. Oh, off and the top of the rocket? Off the top of oh, the no. rocket. And it ended back on Mother Earth. <laughs> oh, dear. So that was £860 million down the tubes, uh, literally. And, I mean, it, it, it can happen. The last thing you want to do is have nuts and bolts and everything else holding onto that spacecraft because gravity itself and the force of the rocket will keep it on there. It's getting rid of it when you get up into orbit. Every time you put a nut or a bolt somewhere to hold something, you've got something that has a risk of going wrong. And when you look at the number of parts, you start to think, how much can go wrong? It's a miracle that some of these things actually launched. But technology and our learning and our ability to achieve things improved immensely. I would say the Second World War was responsible for a huge amount of learning. I've heard it said many times that the war is a war is a mother of invention. And uh, it is, but it's sad to say. Indeed, indeed. Now, yeah. you were in the industry in the, well, initially in the 70s, would that be fair to say? I started off, I suppose, the late 60s into, into the spacecraft, into, in, into communications in the late 60s, into the 70s. Uh, late 70s, I left formal service and started at Inmarsat, and uh, I was there a long time. The interesting thing about that is that as we learnt more and we achieved more, as part of the team, we designed the next series of, of Inmarsat spacecraft because our first series, we borrowed them from or hired them from Marex. We used the Marex bird. The next ones we designed and built ourselves. And, of course, as we learnt more about space, the smart guys in the back room realised that if you put a piece of metal at the end of the solar panel, one side shiny, the other side black, you could actually affect using the solar wind, which is charged particles, to actually fly the spacecraft. You could fly it in this charged particle wind. So you could save on fuel, because every spacecraft, quote the word spacecraft as against satellite, had thrusters on board, carried hydrazine fuel to run those thrusters, and you were required by international or global agreement to keep your spacecraft in a one-kilometer box, and we are literally talking about an XYZ box. You've got to fly it in that box if it's geostationary because next to you is another box belonging to somebody else. You hit their spacecraft, you've got to buy them a new one. <laughs> and you already know the cost of that. <laughs> I mean, as an example, in Marsat's first launch, the company had to invest the whole cost of the spacecraft into the insurance company. So it basically wasn't insurance at all. It was saying, we'll lodge this money with the insurance company. If it goes wrong, the insurance will give us the money back. We'll build another one. 
However, if your flight is successful, the insurance company say, well, you've got another three to launch. They're the same spacecraft. The money that we hold will cover you for all three. So if you lose one of them, two of them, three of them, we'll pay you for them and you can build new ones. So it's an investment game. Um, Inmarsat's launch went off like the, it was 100%. It arrived on station when it should do. It went through its testing when it should do, and it came online two days early and started making money. So the insurance companies immediately turned around and said, well, you've got another three to launch. We've, if something goes wrong, we'll cover you. Nothing did, of course. They all went launched successfully. So my position in Inmarsat was as uh, initially as a project engineer and then as a project manager. I project managed the up and down link security or, or encryption of the spacecraft, which meant I had a fair bit of traveling to do. One of the aspects of, of spacecraft and communications is that if you're an engineer in this world, there is no such thing as a clock. A spacecraft is like a radio-controlled model. What do you do if you can't control it? Well, you stand there with your controller and you work away at it until you fix it or until you decide you can't fix it. But you're talking about £860 million worth of spacecraft and heaven only knows how many million pounds worth of daily money. So if it has a hiccup, you work the clock round until you fix it. The longest I've worked is 17 days with a team of guys when something went wrong. And we just sat at it for 24 hours a day, grabbing a snooze while we could, eating and drinking masses of coffee, smoking loads of cigarettes, because we did in those days, and fighting the problem. And when you found the solution, you all went to bed. And slept for two days. <laughs> but you had to find the solution. You had to fix it. You either had to fix it or find a way around it. And of course, that ended up with me, where I was involved in the encryption side. Even today, I don't talk a lot about it. So encrypting, uplink and downlink encryptions, really important, absolutely vital, because you don't want some hacker hacking into the spacecraft and turning everything off or turning everything on or switching channels and so on. If you look at all the way back to Telstar, Telstar had one single video channel and a number of telephone channels. Very, very clever. When you look at the likes of Inmarsat spacecraft that are flying now, they have hundreds of thousands of continuous simultaneous telephone channels going on all the time and a considerable number of video channels, plus t telecommand channels, picture channels. I mean, it, it's masses. You've just got to believe it. If you really want to understand how that works, you've got to get into things called band spread techniques. And that's just something that uh, way technical. I don't want to bore you with that right now. That's just way too much. But, no, but you have mentioned Telstar. Now, that was... I believe uh, Telstar won the very first telecommunications satellite that would be capable of passing uh, television signals. And as a kid, I would have been about eight, I guess, when it first flew. Um, I remember everyone was terribly excited because we were able to get live TV broadcasts from the United States into Europe and vice versa. What was the technology like with Telstar? 
Well, it's actually amazing. I mean, you, you, you think about it. If you get into this seriously and you start to realise, from my point of view, I turn around and I look at it now and I looked at the miracles of, of, of space technology in those days. Um, it was transistorized. Now, that sounds, oh, that's wonderful. It's all transistors. It wasn't all transistors. There was a valve on board that spacecraft, a travelling wave tube valve, um, it is, it's got heaters, it's got everything else, but it's, it's cavity operated up into the thousands of megacycles. To get into that, you really need to do a bit of reading. I don't want to get into too much theory, but if you start looking at the likes of the transistors, today we talk about something, the fact that, that we have two spacecraft that have been sent out of the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, they are of transistor technology, they're still going and we're still receiving signals. It is amazing when you think about it. Matt is of course talking about the remarkable Voyager series of spacecraft which are still continuing their journey through interstellar space. We'll hear more from Matt on the next Plain Tale when we conclude his interview. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice tease. Ah, that was interesting. Inmarsat, aren't they the company that uh, now a lot of airlines um, subscribe to as far as coverage uh, over international waters or over wide expanses of the yeah, oceans? Yeah, indeed. To, I, I think yeah. they're, they're the ones that specialized in geostationary rather than low-orbit satellites. But uh, I'm not too... F- well up on that but i'll tell you what uh, i met matt and uh we just sort of clicked you know like uh, i had really had no idea of his background but uh i've <laughs> very soon realized that there was an enormous depth to his knowledge and understanding in this specific area of uh, radio communications and satellite technology and engineering you know he he managed and built entire ground stations uh and uh, he was responsible for an awful lot of the infrastructure that we use day to day uh in our telecommunications systems Uh, but his knowledge is much deeper than that and for years i didn't realize uh just what he got up to let alone all the incredibly secure knowledge that he had for the encryption side of his work. Anyway, uh, when I started to find out really what he got up to in his past life, I, I, you know, my eyes were well opened. And yet Matt was the most wonderful guy who would give you so much of his time. He'd come along and do your plumbing because he learned how to be to fix plumbing when he was a radar technician and he'd come along and fix your house electrics and he'd, he'd do anything for anybody. He, he still, he's, he's a few years older than me. So he's well into his seventies. He's still driving, um, patients to hospitals as part of a volunteer driving service and this kind of thing. He's just one of the world's most wonderful people and you would never know looking at him and chatting to him because he's not one that worries too much about how he dresses, uh, you know, um, and, you know, he's just, <laughs> he's just a he's real character. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, yeah, with his hidden 
absolutely. Yeah, he's got all this hidden talent, and uh, you you wouldn't really know. In fact, you'd dismiss him as being a bit of a, I don't know, a bit of a one-off, a bit unusual. Uh, you underestimate. Uh, yeah, very much. He would be underestimated by the average person. So I was so pleased. So, Captain Nick, uh, have you? Yeah, that I got to. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Him. Sorry, Jeff. Yeah. No, I think our lag, our latency is bad for some reason. Um, and I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, I'm, I'm, so have you already recorded the second part of the interview? Yeah, I've just about finished it. I've, I've just about finished the, it today. And we continued to talk about Telstar because, I, I, I mean, I got onto this subject initially because I discovered that uh, Telstar was put into uh, orbit around the Earth. And a few months later, in fact, not that long later, we fired, or I say we, <laughs> I don't think we had any nukes, but you guys certainly did, uh, fired some nukes into uh, the edges of the atmosphere and exploded them to see what would happen and created an, uh, an irradiation belt that uh, a few months later, Telstar flew through and <laughs> killed it. <laughs> So it worked. So, uh oh. Oh boy. Yeah, well, <laughs> we discovered an awful lot about EMP. <laughs> that sort of thing. But uh, there was this incredibly expensive experimental satellite up there that got taken out <laughs> almost by accident. Anyway, I, I was going to tell that story, but and I asked Matt about it, and he said, Oh, I could, I could talk to about that for a while. So that's how this happened. So. I'm just delighted I okay. got the chance to do what I consider a you know a bit of a formal chat with him before he disappeared out of my life. Uh, let's continue some more feedback. Um, and uh, since uh, Dr. Steph is our resident glider expert, uh, we're going to go ahead and have her uh, read this one. I will be happy to read this. I will uh, preface this with, I know almost nothing about gliders other than they... What? Function. You don't fly gliders? Gliders. Yeah. All right. Here we go with this feedback. This is from Alan Murray about a glider accident. He says, hi, Captains Jeff and Nick. Man, he didn't even address this to me. So thanks for. Oh, yeah. Maybe I should come. No, 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 no. I got it. It's, it's good. <laughs> um, this is actually um, a, a fairly serious feedback. So <laughs> he says, hi, Captains Jeff and oh, Nick. Um, can I ask if two minutes could be allocated to your next news section, please, possibly to save a life? Well, feedback, but we'll see what we can do here. It follows a UK air accidents investigation branch report from August 31st, in which a young, uh, it puts in parentheses, visiting glider pilot, aged just 21, died last year after launching from my former club in Storrington, West, Sus West Sussex. That was hard for me to say for some reason. The elevator control linkage was found disconnected. The report is here, but a good summary of it is here. Um, and I think he gives us a bit of a summary here as well. This tragic tale looks like a rigging accident compounded by the lack of a positive control check. Without a positive control check, the report says, on this glider type, it is likely that if the elevator controls were left disconnected, the control surface would still move in the correct sense due to gravity and in response to control column movement. Therefore, such a check without resistance applied to the control surface would be unlikely to reveal the presence of the disconnected elevator control mechanism. It's so easily done, particularly with, as in this case, as I understand, an early morning 42-mile trailer tow 
the excitement of a different flying field, perhaps meeting new people and other possible distractions. And although not a factor here, many gliders have control linkages which do not lock into position automatically, but need careful alignment, sometimes within the flying surfaces and only confirmed by quote unquote feel, whereupon a positive control check becomes even more critical. I particularly flag this because many of your audience will be glider pilots in their spare time or have sons and daughters who soar. The pilot was an experienced glider pilot with 450 hours and 396 launches. He had considerable cross-country experience and had been selected as a member of the BGA Junior British team. He was also a qualified basic instructor on gliders and held an IASA PPLA. Quite an incredible young man. All demonstrating perhaps it can happen even to the best of us. Blue skies, Alan Murray. So, wow, sad. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, you know, I guess uh, kind of what he was alluding to there, towing your, uh, uh, basically bringing your glider with you to a new airfield. I, I don't know what goes into the um, assembly process after you've done that, but sounds like these uh, positive control checks are quite important. Uh, absolutely. I yes. mean, it's so important that on an airliner that we fly all day, every day, every single commercial pilot does a control check. In fact, both of you do control checks and confirm that everything's moving in the correct sense and operating uh, correctly. And mm -hmm. absolutely, everyone that flies an airplane could do that because you can just see what happens when a simple mistake is made. Uh, and uh, I feel dreadful for this pilot. Uh, lots of mitigation, I think, because, um, you know, it's very hard to stay focused on a task when you've got lots going on around you, new environment, interesting people wandering up, perhaps chatting while you're doing things. But it's it's a bit like doing the walk around of your own uh, airliner. Um, it's, or you're sitting on the flight deck, trying to manage a problem that the engineers, probably two or three of them, are right between the seats talking to you about while you're still trying to prep the airplane for takeoff, do all your pre-takeoff work, and some of which, some of those tasks are safety critical. So it's so easy to become distracted by odd things that occur. It's a mark of a good crew that they one, can overcome those problems, and two, when necessary, they push all that to the background and say, you've got to give us five minutes of quiet here now while we do this, and then we'll carry on this conversation uh, and uh, take control of the situation and don't let people sort of overcome you and uh, talk over you and distract you when you really need to be concentrating 100% on what you're doing. Sure. I was wondering if this control, this this type of positive control check was somehow different though in gliders. I don't have any, you know, because there's a different, it sounds like there's a different feel to it and the resistance applied. I just wasn't sure if that was something that's, um, let's see, UH Blackhawk in the chat room says, I only started doing control checks with resistance in gliders last year. Never thought about this before. Hmm. Um, Interesting. I, mean, I have no idea how this control check could be performed and how the controls would move unless there was a positive connection. I don't understand how that connection works. Well, he, you know, he made the comment uh, partway through there where he said, uh, 
Is it Such sometime- a check without resistance applied to the control surface would be unlikely to reveal the presence of the disconnected elevator control mechanism. So I don't know if he's saying that the stick will feel the same um, or. Yeah. Yeah. Additional information here from, from your yeah. Blackhawk says someone applies light pressure against the ailerons as you do the control checks to make sure that they're, I guess, to make sure there's the correct feel and resistance to the control input. So, interesting. It sounds so like a difference with gliders. If you're looking at the ailerons, yeah. if you're looking at the ailerons and you move the stick, are they and you like to the left? Are, shouldn't the ailerons still move? Even it sounds if there's like no they resistance do, but there's something uh, there's diff- something different with how they how the control linkages lock into position. Which yeah, I'm a, a lot of these airplanes use push rods instead of cables. So I guess it could be it could be something where you know you move you move the controls. And a pushrod pushing a, a disconnected pushrod pushing against something, you still might be able it's to actuate loose. that aileron. And then when you move back, gravity's going to let that aileron come down. Uh, yeah, that or something sense. like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, yeah, okay. we're talking elevator here, by the way. I think. Well, yeah. So, I mean, either either way, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. With I agree, but yeah. uh, C- just compared for, to a just for correctness. Yep. Um, but you know, this is uh, these airplanes are designed to be disassembled and assembled. Um, all the time, right? Like <laughs> yeah. I know I did a little bit of glider flying right when I first started flying. And um, I'd say probably the majority of people that were flying at the field that I was flying at stored their airplanes in the trailer. And so every time they flew, they were assembling their airplanes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's interesting. That makes sense with the, if it's a, a push rod type control, I was thinking about it being more a, a cable type control, which didn't make a whole lot of sense at first. But yeah, if it's not, you know, if you haven't made the physical connection, but it's still close to the control surface where it can actuate it, and then it just falls back into place with gravity, but doesn't catch. Um, yeah, I could see how that would. Yeah. <laughs> Tim and Ram. Yeah. Okay. Too in our live uh, audience. <laughs> I presume you can replicate that just by leaning over the side of the basket. Is that? What? Well, so the people are listening to audio only. Tim Van Ram in our live audience says, Control checks in hot air balloons require moving sandbags from port to starboard and fore and aft. <laughs> oh, that's I love funny. it. Uh, good one. Good one. Thanks for that, Alan, though. Important. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, we didn't um, mean to uh, laugh at uh, this. is not a laughing matter at all. It's just uh, some of our uh, people in our chat room are, are laughable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but thank you, Alan, for setting in that very sens- uh, serious uh, glider accident. And uh, that's hopefully something that will uh, be a warning to those of you out there who are glider pilots or are thinking to become pilots uh glider pilots in the future yeah all right um continuing on with this next piece of feedback from richard uh he says good morning jeff and the abg crew first of all thank you for reading my extra long feedback on episode 576 i'm the one who's worked at the airport since 19 or 2002 and finally got a job as an airline pilot 20 years later. Uh-huh. That was a great story. Thank you for sharing that oh, with well, us, uh, Richard. It seemed to go down well in the chat room. Uh, it's a shame I didn't write to you sooner, and I may have been able to meet you while you were over for the British Grand Prix. On the next episode, you had someone called Marcus asking to be put in touch with me, and I've been in touch with him to discuss the training route I took. 
what a great uh, community you've built, a podcast host from the States, me in Central England, and Marcus up in Scotland, all connected by a weekly aviation show. Amazing. Yeah, that is fantastic. Anyway, yeah. Uh, anyway, in this week's plane tale, uh, Nick thanked the chap who does a lot of uh, his voice uh, overwork for the tales, Greg Willits. And I was wondering if he would consider getting in touch with my partner, James. He's a relative newcomer to the world of voiceover, having been made redundant from his old job just as I started flying jets. So, like me, he has done the midlife career change. It's been a fun few years for us both, that's for sure. Fun was in uh, air quotes, I guess. Uh, Anyway, he's getting some regular work from it, but it would be great for him to do uh, some storytelling and maybe get his name out there. Obviously, there wouldn't be any change or charge, excuse me. Uh, There wouldn't be any charge, but it would be a great experience for him, and hopefully he can add something unique to the show. Maybe he could record a segment for your social media channels for the end of each show instead of Steph having to do it every single time. Oh, that's yes. a good idea. Woo-hoo. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I I don't, Steph likes that idea. This, I don't, oh, you are loved. It's just that when you're not here, I have to do the damn thing. So we should at least have a stand-in for me if I'm not here. Absolutely. There you go. So when you're not here, then maybe James can do it. Um Anyway, uh, thanks for the show. I shall include James' details below. Please feel free to listen to his demos, which show a little well, which range. Which I have. I do. went onto his website and had a listen, and he's got a great range of voices. Uh, he's sadly English, and I can do English. Um, I was going to make. I was going to make that point <laughs> as a joke. Thank, thank you. <laughs> the only problem is he has an English accent. Yeah, I can't. What I can't do is American because you guys have. Taken our language and ripped it up and, and made it so much started better. Started again. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah. Now now. So uh, I don't know if James can uh, stretch that far, but that's why I asked Greg to do so much because uh, one thing I can't do because basically I I had my I you guys uh, Tom well. I was going to say, you just ripped me incessantly every time I tried to approximate an American accent. <laughs> oh, so I, I give up <laughs> out of embarrassment. I had to start asking Greg to do it for me. Now, that is not true. It's all you doing that to yourself. Exactly. <laughs> we we never it. make fun oh, of your American true. accent. We're, your American accent American. Is, is really authentic. <laughs> <laughs> Yeehaw! Indeed. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Indeed. Well, I'm, both I'm both yours and, and uh, Carlos's from PTUK come out like they're they're kind of just John Wayne-ish, and it's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's the exposure but, we get to your that's, wonderful. That's actually a good thing. I think I like John Wayne. Although, uh, yeah, I, t- I can tell you, your American accent and and uh, Carlos's as well uh, is a heck of a lot better than me trying to do an English accent. I can't. I can't do it. Can't I can only do it, do it after a number of. Um, uh, beverages to help. No, that just makes beverage. you think you can do. It. <laughs> and then, and then I, and then I'm pretty good at like it, at intimidate or intimidate in uh, imitating uh, like the sat nav voice. I can do that. That's what I get <laughs> okay. in my head, and that's what I go off of. Excellent. So, what does a sat nav voice sound like? I'm not sure I know that. Well, I mean, just in the UK, it's got a British accent, so. I just hear that in my head and I can okay. use that. But I haven't had enough beverages to, to do that right now, so we're not going to. 
Oh, you're talking about like a, the turn-by-turn yeah, directions yeah. from the I guess, GPS. I, I was thinking sat-nav. It was like thinking about satellites and the rockets and all that kind of stuff. Um, sorry. I guess it's getting uh, getting late, and I'm my brain fog is really rolling in. Um, let's. Oh, this is good news. I definitely want to cover this one. Um, this is from Robert in Tucker, Georgia. Uh, he said uh, Tom Brady has found a new job at Acme Sister Airline Delta. Uh, he'll be a strategic advisor to Delta. There he is with our C uh, with the CEO of Delta Airlines. <laughs> And also, it looks like his specialty is going to be um, monitoring air pressure mm-hmm. on some of the fleet's uh, tires. <laughs> Here we go. Here's a picture of him. He's been hired to approve our uh, Delta's tire pressure. He said he's looking at these saying, looks good. So for those who uh, probably are scratching their heads on this one, uh, the reason why it's funny is it's pretty bad when you have to explain a joke. But uh, it's an American thing. American football, gridiron football. Um, the uh, it was uh, something that we called uh, Deflate Gate. This is from the Wikipedia. Uh, the, the Deflate Gate scandal was a National Football League controversy in the United States involving the allegation that New England Patriots quarterback Tom Brady ordered the deliberate deflation of footballs that were used in the Patriots' victory against the Indianapolis Colts during the 2014 AFC Championship game on January 18, 2015. So it's been a while. It's been about eight years, I guess. Not quite. Uh, or m- no, more than eight years, I guess. And, uh, and and there are a lot of jokes made about uh, deflated footballs and such. So, um, yeah, I, that's why we thought that this was I, – I thought this was very cute, this little photo of – photoshopped uh, Tom Brady in front of uh, – Looks like triple uh, seven uh, uh, landing gear tires that are uh, not holding as much air as they're designed to. <laughs> anyway, so they've got plenty at the top. It's just the bottom that's deflated. Yeah, I know. They should just turn them, uh, like turn them over. Yeah, you just start rolling, it'll, it'll, it'll yeah. all even out. I'm pretty sure. Just, um, just start if you get fast, yeah, if you roll fast, sure. Enough. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, but it really is true that uh, he, uh, Tom Brady is be going to be a strategic advisor to Delta Airlines. Um, pretty interesting, I think. Okay. Um, what was, I just, I'm just looking at this article here. Um, BlackBerry hired Alicia, Alicia Keys as a, a creative director in 2013. Yeah, we know where BlackBerry and, is. Now, oh, and she too. promptly tweeted about it on an iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's brilliant. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> anyway, um, so we'll have this article in the show notes. Thank you, Robert, in Tucker, Georgia. And uh, Liz, what did you say? Should we do some more or should we start uh, wrapping yeah, it up? Yeah, a couple more. Maybe if we were talking about John Wayne. Do you want to go to number 13? That's what's been sent in by the John Wayne machine. Oh, we have some uh, feedback. Since we were talking about John Wayne, we have something sent in to us uh, from the John Wayne machine. I guess this is what is happening now in our world. Uh, AI. Artificial intelligence is sending us feedback. Um, <laughs> I thought you were going to say, "Hello, like, APG crew." Yeah, I was out there listening to the comment I made and somehow worked feedback in, like just that quick. Well, that know. could be. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. just sent it in. It just came in, right, Liz? Yeah. 
Um, I, I, yeah, right just now. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, hello, APG crew, longtime listener, still loving the show. This is the first time I've submitted time feedback, so please be gentle. This is the first time I've submitted time feedback. I think yeah, he has an extra time in here. <laughs> in That's what you get times. with AI. They just can't get everything exactly right. He said, so please be gentle. Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Nick, I was intrigued about your discussion regarding the AOPA case study accident that was likely contributed to, that was likely contributed to aircraft perform. No, I think he means attribute, attributed. Attributed, yeah. Okay, I'll start over. Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, and Nick, I was intrigued about your discussion regarding the AOPA case study accident that was likely attributed to aircraft performance issues associated with high-density altitude operations. In particular, I remember Captain Nick mentioning the need for pilots to be able to apply performance penalties on the manufacturer's performance data, thereby allowing for airframes and engines that aren't hot off the production line. I thought it might interest you that the Aviation Authority, where I'm from in Australia, requires pilots, Part 91, by law, to apply a 1.15 safety factor on top of the performance data derived from the manufacturer's charts to allow for such things as pilot skills, aircraft age, etc. Additionally, there is nothing stopping pilots applying their own safety factor that is greater than what is required by law. Furthermore, Part 135 operations are required to provide their own safety margin regarding aircraft performance, which has to be written into an approved operations manual to which company pilots will then use. Hopefully that adds some insight for what happens in other countries. I would love to know if the FAA or EASA have similar philosophies regarding this topic. Excuse me, regarding this topic. Uh, P.S. Shameless plug. If the APG crew need any local knowledge of aviation incidents in Australia, I'd be happy to help. Also, kudos to Captain Nick if he knows the nickname for the A320. I don't know. Do you? I know plenty of nicknames for the A320. I'm assuming he's referring to the one called the John Wayne machine, which I, I don't know. Oh, I find that really? just a little bit tasteless, but so I'm not comfortable explaining oh, it exactly. Why? I don't understand. I don't okay, it. explain it to me. What does that Can mean? Can you explain the it John to us Wayne machine after the it? show then? Yeah, I'll explain it to you after the show. If it's tasteless, yeah. Let's okay. <laughs> All right, it's really that bad, huh? No, it's not okay. hugely bad. Um, it's just a bit tasteless, I thought. But that's okay. That's just me, perhaps. Okay. Um, I also wanted to uh, say that isn't it Australia that um, also like when you get checked out on uh, a GA aircraft that you have to be like rated on that particular type, not maybe type rated as we refer to it here in the States or other parts of the world, but I think they do, they do require our country if, a much more, uh, yes, you know, you have, uh, if you were going, so I'll just say here in the United States, if you were going to go to a flight school and fly a type of aircraft that you had not flown before, there would be a checkout on it. And, uh, the time requirement and things like that may have something to do with insurance requirements, um, but in general, if you hold a private pilot rating, you're going to fly a single engine piston aircraft that does not require a type rating. You can go ahead and fly it. Um, but I do think it's different in Australia. I think it's more extensive or perhaps even with an examiner for different yeah, types. I think Evan Shu was saying like you have to get checked out on particular models of Yeah, not just really with the flight school that you're, you know, renting the aircraft yeah. from or 
whoever's selling you the airplane, but yeah. like with an examiner. Well, I could be wrong about that. Let us know. That's what I that, that was my that. recollection as well. Okay. I, I think the important question here is, do we, do any of us believe that Captain Nick would have exercised the same discretion had the nickname been in regards to a Boeing airplane? Oh, that's uh, a bit unfair. No. <laughs> <laughs> Airbus flag. This, uh, this, I think uh, we're talking about incidents here. <laughs> we'll no, go there. No. Yeah. So is it, this is this would be uh, if he was talking about the Boeing stuff, it'd be it'd be just constant <laughs> yeah. uh, censoring the whole darn. Well, that would be completely fair. <laughs> uh, all right 16, 17 and 18. let's uh, okay good i wanted to cover these <laughs> uh hang on i gotta do some prep work here okay um this is from dominic o'kelly um a new zealand couple demand refunds for a flight with a farting dog <laughs> <laughs> Thought you might enjoy this one, according to Dom. Was that You're welcome. Chewy uh, and Star Wars? No, this is actually some kind of a dog whining. It does almost sound like a human, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, I would too. <laughs> hey, that's the best I could do at short, weird, on short, yeah, short notice. Going on there with that dog. Yeah. <laughs> you probably were hurt. You well, never mind. <laughs> no, we're not going to talk about the diarrhea. <laughs> All right. Uh, two Kiwi. Tr- this is from uh, New Zealand Herald. Co. Nz. Two Kiwi travelers are seeking compensation after being sat cheek by jowl for a 13-hour flight next to a flatulent dog. Uh, Gil Press and husband Warren from Wellington were flying with Singapore Airlines uh, with Singapore Airlines from Paris to Singapore's Changi Airport. Changi. Changi? In June, when they learned, uh, I don't like it, they would be sharing the journey Ding. with a congested bulldog, uh, saying that it had not been warned of the pet ahead of travel. The presses said they first noticed the uh, dog. Oh, that's their last name, the presses. I thought they were referring to the news organizations. Uh, they first noticed the dog's heavy, fragrant snorting. I thought it was my husband's phone. But we looked down and realized it was the dog breathing, she told uh, Stuff. Hmm. Having booked a premium economy fare, they had expected additional comfort, not to spend the trip in a cocktail of dog fart, bad breath, and saliva. (laughs) And not all of those were coming from the dog, I'd like to point out. (laughs) Um, Jill said that uh, at one point her husband, who was wearing shorts, had his legs smeared with dog slobber. Hmm. Uh, bonus, I'd say. Airline crew explained that the dog was traveling as a support animal with its owner, who was seated at the window. It could not be moved for risk of the animal getting into the aisle and under the catering trolley wheels. As the flight was fully booked, the passengers could only be offered alternate seats in economy class. After initially refusing the downgraded seats, they eventually moved midway through the 13-hour flight. Passengers who had bought their fare via Air New Zealand said that they were offered travel vouchers, but their demands for a refund had uh, not yet been addressed. A spokesperson for the Singapore Singapore Airlines told the Herald that they endeavor to notify customers who may be seated next to a pet before boarding and offer alternate, alternate seating where possible. 
In this instance, we were unable to move Mr. and Mrs. Press without the, uh, within the same cabin as the premium economy class cabin was full. Our crew offered to move Mr. and Mrs. Press to two empty seats in economy class, which they accepted after takeoff. Okay, again, we have uh, paragraphs explaining previous paragraphs. Um, anything else new in this article before I continue? The gist of it there, yeah. Dave. Well, no, um, that that's a shame. Uh, you know, long flight uh, discomfort and that sort of thing. Um, and it sounds like they were they did their best to you know like accommodate, uh, them. accommodate them as best they could. Changing cabin what the dog pressure. Was, wonder what the dog was eating, Jeff. Well, Liz, that's a good question. Um, so this next uh, piece of feedback may actually uh, hold the answer to Liz's question. Uh, greetings and hallucinations, or is it salutations, or potato, tomato, tomato, tomato. Okay. To Captain Jeff and all the APG crew, your show, this is from Matt Burtz. Your show has been an amazing help to me in a multitude of ways. Been listening for about a year now and jump on every episode as soon as it comes out. Enjoy the ride. I'm working on my instrument rating. Yeah. Currently, I am working on my instrument rating and hoping to have both my instrument and commercial done by the end of the year. My goal is to make it to the airlines in as short of time as possible. If it ain't Boeing... I ain't going. Well, that cuts out about uh, 70% of the (laughs) possible jobs you could get, old chap, but you carry on. Uh. (laughs) Okay. Tonight, I was studying different things on my low in-route charts and found this lovely, useful NOTAM for a nearby airport. It's harvest season here, and many of the airports are surrounded by fields. Apparently, this one was planted to soybeans. On my IFR flight in September, on September 9th, I was loosely cut off on my taxi out be- behind a Gulfstream by a pickup pulling round bales. Cue cowboy sounds and gunshots. Okay, here we go. Um, picking, uh, okay, I'll just play them. Yeehaw! <laughs> I love it. Yeehaw! Just curious if any of you have ex- uh, had any unexpected. Just curious. Somebody's distracting me. Just curious if any of you have had any unexpected. Stop it. Um, un- just curious if any of you have had any unexpected things like this on taxi. For us, it's second nature and not surprising. But I'm guessing ATL, Charlotte, and Heathrow might be surprised by this. What say you, Camacho? Okay. Well, I, I was just going to say, uh, well, I, I, where I fly is about 35 miles south of Charlotte in the country in uh, South Carolina, and I'm not surprised yes. by any of these things. Yeah, so so the, this NOTAM that he is, to which he's referring, and we have up on our screen in the video, and we'll have on the screen uh, the chapter image, uh, if you're listening to the podcast, Um HSI, AD, AP, all surface work in progress, farming, cutting the beans. Uh, see see the connection the there? Was and the farting the dog dogs and cutting the beans. the beans. The dog was probably eating the beans. Probably okay. soybeans there. No. And I thought you guys worried about cutting the cheese. That's just in Wisconsin. Uh, uh, well, cutting the cheese is also a bad <laughs> Just Wisconsin. 
<laughs> yeah. I've seen that on a NOTAM. <laughs> Where I fly, it's all, all, it's all cotton fields. Then, so actually, it smells quite nice when uh, cotton's in bloom, which is coming oh, up here oh. very soon. You said it smells? It, it's fragrant, but it's a nice fragrance. Is yeah. it? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I've never, maybe I've never been in a cotton mm-hmm. field. I didn't know it had a fragrance yeah, to it. Yeah, we've got corn and cool. some alfalfa around my airport. Um, uh-huh. Nothing directly on the airport, but it is common to, because we have grass runway, it is common to have tractors milling about working on the grass runway. Yeah. Nice. Now, who's this guy, Jeff, that sent this last item in? Well, I don't know who this Jeff guy is that sent in this feedback, but it must be great. Um, so I was... Uh, uh, looking through some uh, aviation news and uh, saw this, this, uh, this. Oh, what happened? Um, this Twitter uh, photo. Uh, uh, it's an in an airport and uh, this lounge. lady uh, in a departure lounge or at a gate, um, just outside the gate, um, with a lady with a stroller, and in the stroller is. It's, well, it could be a baby it rabbit. It looks like but the it's Cadbury darn bunny. big rabbit. It looks like the Cadbury egg. <laughs> it's a huge rabbit. rabbit. It's a yeah. bunny rabbit in the stroller with, um, with a couple of electric well, fans to keep on. its temperature it constant. Yeah, it has a it has a hat on as well, or a <laughs> yeah, like a visor, visor. <laughs> like a visor kind of hat. With its ears sticking up. <laughs> it's very. It's got like a flag. Funny. That's great. Flying on one side of the. Stroller or something over mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. It's probably um, an emotional support oh rabbit, I guess. It probably is. Yeah, I mean, you joke, but I'm I, sure. I it feel is. like yeah, we just, Jeff is feel well like we're not done. we're not uh, we're not adequately <laughs> describing how giant this rabbit is. <laughs> it's really, I'm going to guess really, that this thing is like a thirty pound rabbit. <laughs> like it's it's a large <laughs> it's a huge huge rabbit. rabbit. Yeah. It's, it's could you use the word voluptuous? Think, it's like very, yeah. you know, lots of. Yeah. Well, you know what, um, Camacho, you you mentioned the flag there. It looks like it's there's like a bunny rabbit uh, on the on like a silhouette of a bunny. Yeah, to be honest the, with you, I I wondered if that flag. was like a Playboy flag. I was, <laughs> <laughs> it might be. <laughs> okay, well, you know, yeah, rabbits have quite uh, interesting sex lives. I think. Well, yeah, um, well, they're busy. You know, they're, they're very blank busy. like a rabbit. <laughs> Uh, let's comment here. Jim. All right, Micah in our live audience Launchpad had giant rabbit pets like that. Oh, Launchpad Marzari, uh, rest in peace. Um, had had huge giant rabbits. Um, That's a big bunny. Wow. Uh, oh, UH. Yeah, UH Blackhawk says, "Where's Elmer Fudd when you need him?" <laughs> oh, right. he's out there stuck oh, right. I'm hunting yeah. rabbits. <laughs> Wabbit. The All wabbits. right. Um, you know what time it time is? Time to wrap it up. It's uh, it's about seven thirty Eastern Daylight Time. Is what time? It, oh, it's also wrap up time for the APG episode five eight five. And this is where we point you over to the website airlinepilotguy.com where there's lots of good info about this and that, including information about the crew and the community community calendar the library more information about the uh, plane tales uh, merchandise and information on about how you can become a contributor via the coffee fund and so much more so head over to airlinepilotguy.com and check it out and we are on social media and dr steph she's still my favorite still here go ahead and tell might us be james soon i'm really media. wondering if he could just impersonate me 
So you really wouldn't know the difference oh, if I wasn't we'll here. We'll see how he does. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Anyway, you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Over on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, we're at APG Crew with all of our individual Twitter X handles, whatever they're called now, pinned to the top of that page. I like to call it Twixter. Twixter. Yeah, I think we need to update our, <laughs> I don't know, too much maybe. Yeah. Um, also on Instagram, APG Crew, you can find Captain Nick's amazing uh, weekly uh, show artwork posted there. And if you want to connect with the community on an even deeper level, um, I would point you over to Slack. All right. Uh, let's see if uh, Hillel is here. Ah, I think he is. I hear the uh, the shower. All right. Hey, Hillel, can, can you help us out with the uh, Slack? Jeff, would you loop on my back again? Maybe after you tell us about Slack? APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. All right, thanks a lot, Hillel. Okay. That was a pretty I think you quick owe him a whole up. job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm fast. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, also, we'd like to thank our producer, Liz Piper. She's going to join us in the uh, video here. There go. Thank you, Liz, for Welcome. all the work that you do behind the scenes during the show and after. Well done, Liz. We appreciate you. Thanks, guys. And. Uh, Finally, we'd like to thank also our live audience when uh, you're hanging out with us there. It's, uh, it makes the show really wonderful. So thank you for being there. And uh, uh, let's see, hope to see you all next week. And until then, wishing you all clear skies and limited visibility talents, Douglas. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. See you next time. Have a great holiday, Nick. Oh, thank you. What she said. <laughs> Good day. I used to be such a good, good pilot. Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But 
But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly 